Lost World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. All right? Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Konnichiwa, what's happening? What's going on? Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Namaste, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on today in the world of sports. Man, it's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you without a strong podcast to step to. But uh, I got something for you today. I want to deter just a little bit from what's going on in the NFL. Yes, the game on Monday night between the Baltimore Ravens and the Cleveland Browns was fantastic. I understand that the Pittsburgh Steelers now have lost two games in a row. I understand that the Kansas City defending champions are still moving strong, are still the best team in the NFL. I understand that the New Orleans Saints lost to the Philadelphia Eagles with Jalen Hurts as their quarterback. I, I don't understand, and I know people do it, and I know people have big houses. I know people do a lot of things in terms of making money, gambling, betting. I understand that, but man, I don't see how anybody does anything in terms of winning consistently when you're gambling, gambling if you're talking about the NFL. Who knew, man? Who knew? Who would have thunk it? Each week I come up here and I talk about, well, this team's in first place or this team is vying for this draft position. If you take a look at the schedule, they're going to be playing this team and that team's and these teams and those teams and that game's going to be a win and that game's going to be a loss and that game's going to be a win. Unless you're playing the Jacksonville Jaguars or you're playing the New York Jets or if you're playing the uh, Kansas City defending champions, everything else, man, you don't know. Who knows? New Orleans came into the game against Philadelphia with a nine-game winning streak. Yes, I understand that Drew Brees wasn't around and Taysom Hill was going to be the quarterback, but you would think the way that Philadelphia looks so dysfunctional and in such disarray, and you're bringing in the guy and Jalen Hurts to be your quarterback, you would think, especially with the fact that the New Orleans Saints have so much to play for in terms of trying to uh, obtain or secure that number one seed in the advantage in the uh, in the playoffs coming up, that they would play with a little bit more urgency, but uh, they didn't. And Green Bay now had the number one seed in the uh, NFC, and who knows what's going to be happening. Now, we take a look at what Drew Brees is going through with the 15,000 cracked ribs, and we don't know with him, with the game coming up the, this Sunday against Kansas City, we don't know exactly what his status is going to be. And we do know one thing, whenever Drew Brees gets back and gets ready to play, that he's not going to be... 100%. He's not going to be nearly 100%. The effective type of quarterback that we saw from Breeze, Breeze through the stretch of the season, that's not going to be there. So we don't know what kind of quarterback. Are we going to be getting 60% Drew Breeze? Are we going to be getting 55% Drew Breeze? I mean, what percentage of Drew Breeze are we going to be getting? And is that, and is that going to be good enough? Especially if you take a look at the history over the past two or three seasons in the playoffs concerning the New Orleans Saints, whether they were playing on the road or at home. So who knows, man, with Drew Brees being 41 years old, 
going to be uh, moving, making the transition to the broadcast booth whenever he finishes uh, finishes playing. We don't know that if this season's going to be the last hurrah in terms of the dominance, in terms of the team that they have right now for New Orleans. Alvin Kamara is injured. We don't know how banged up he is. We don't know how much of uh, of the injuries is taken away from the running back that was considered uh, MVP consideration earlier in the season. So the defense slipping a little bit against the Philadelphia Eagles. Look, and I understand, hey, you're coming in, Jalen Hurts, you don't have any film on him. You don't have you don't have a book on him in terms of what he does, what he likes to do, and all those type of things as far as being an NFL quarterback. But still, that was an embarrassing loss, even on the road for the New Orleans Saints. And right now, they're paying the repercussions of it that they currently sit in the number two spot behind the Green Bay Packers. Aaron Rodgers playing some fantastic football. He's got MVP considerations written all over him, especially a couple of weeks ago when you saw, or was it last week, whenever the uh, defending champions Kansas City uh, football team played the Miami Dolphins, Patrick Mahomes having two or three interceptions, despite the fact that even with those miscues that the uh, that Kansas City came back and um, and won that football game to uh, to move into first place. The Steelers. What's going on with the Steelers now? Is this just a midseason malaise? Is just something where look, I'm not going to say that the Steelers are falling off the cliff because they lost two games in a row. But what it did show me on Sunday night, losing to Washington. Now we see with um, my uh, Washington Snyder skins the fact that they have a defensive front, which gives you a little bit of hope if you're a Washington football fan moving forward in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. That that front four is something that you can build around. A couple of skill players on the offensive side also gives you hope. But um, you know the fact that the Steelers took the pedal off the metal, if we could use that cliche against Washington, and it came back to bite them with a loss, and then going up to Buffalo and letting Josh Allen do what he did against the Steelers, it, it kind of lets me know that, you know, are the Steelers really going to be that team that are going to be the biggest threat to Kansas City? Or are we taking a look at someone like, say, for instance, the Buffalo Bills? Josh Allen, after a couple of games where he was subpar, now he's back into the groove again. He had a good game the week before. He had a great game uh, against... Uh, against Pittsburgh, I mean, it looks like for now, for the near future, he's here to stay in terms of being a franchise type of quarterback moving forward. The defense, while not playing at the level they did last season, is still good enough to win. And when you take a look at the threats that the uh, that the Buffalo Bills possess on offense, and the way again they beat up on the Pittsburgh Steelers, are the Buffalo Bills the type of team that could give Kansas City in the playoffs a real? chance in terms of uh, Kansas City losing that football game. We take a look now at the Cleveland Browns. At least we saw on Monday night they had the offense to keep up with Kansas City. Defense is another story. And give it up for Lamar Jackson. Look, I'm one of those folks who are sitting up there talking about long-term in terms of quarterbacking is concerned. If we're taking a look down the road, and if we're still here, if this planet is still up and running, if I'm still breathing in the year 2025, 26, 27, and we're, you know, futurizing what the franchise quarterbacks are going to be when Roethlisberger and Brady and Breeze and that generation of quarterbacks, when they're long gone and they're all sitting in the Hall of Fame or they have their uh, Hall of Fame jackets on and we're going to be talking about the next wave of quarterbacks that are going to be carrying the league and we're going to bring up names like Mahomes, we're going to bring up names like Watson, we're going to bring up names like Trevor Lawrence, we're going to bring up those type of quarterbacks, we're going to bring up maybe Josh Allen. Number one, is Baker Mayfield going to be in that group? And number two, is Lamar Jackson going to be in that group with the style of football? He's not that conventional quarterback. 
He's a more athletic yet less bulky version, you could say, of Cam Newton. Cam Newton, 6'5", 250, was never your traditional drop-back, classic pocket quarterback, but still because of his physical gifts, he was able to uh, go ahead and you know carve himself out a nice career in the NFL. He's not going to be a Hall of Famer, but here was a guy who was the MVP of the league in 2015, led his team to the Super Bowl, albeit with a solid defense and running game behind him. He was a quarterback who was never going to be at his best, at his optimal best, if he was going to stand back in a pocket and try to throw the ball 45 and 50 times a game and have a game similar to Tom Brady. He wasn't that type of quarterback. He was intelligent in other ways in terms of being uh, able to get his team to win football games in Carolina and, well, New England is a different story. So my deal is moving forward, is Lamar Jackson going to be his generation's Cam Newton? In terms of, look, I'm giving up on the fact, and, and Lamar is, what, 23, 24, 25 years, or somewhere around that age range, so he has room to grow. He has a lot of room to grow as a passer. But are we ever going to see Lamar Jackson become your classic drop-back quarterback? No. Should we even expect him? Should we even try? Should we even attempt to get Lamar Jackson to be that type of quarterback? No. Let Lamar Jackson do his thing. Okay, so what? You know what? He ain't Troy Aikman. So he ain't Drew Brees. So he ain't Tom Brady. So he ain't Warren Moon. So he ain't one of those guys who's a classic drop-back passer. That's okay. Hey, man, if I'm Jim Harbaugh, if I'm the Ravens organization, he can have, I mean, you know, minus some type of catastrophic injury, which if you go back and take a look at the careers of some of their classic in-the-pocket quarterbacks, Tom Brady lost a whole season one season while getting popped in the pocket, uh, uh, hit on the knees, which caused him to uh, miss the entire season. Randall Cunningham got injured not when he was running around, but when he was in the pocket, Bryce Pop of the Green Bay Packers opening day back in the day hit him low in the knee and his knee was torn up and caused him to miss the entire season. So my point in making those type of examples is to say just because you are a running type of quarterback, a lot of times the injuries, if you're going to be suffering a devastating injury, it's going to be happening just as much when you're in the pocket than it is when you're running around taking a hit, If you're, especially if you're speaking about the knees. Now, a shoulder or a head or ribs or something like that. Drew Brees got injured this season. His ribs were cracked where? On a, on a hit by Minnesota's uh, uh, lineman where? In the pocket. So just because Lamar runs around and is like, well, if you know, if you do that, if you're a scrambling quarterback and you take these unnecessary hits, the likelihood of you suffering a major injury or the likelihood of you suffering an injury goes up exponentially because you're not in the pocket. Well, it just shows that, a, that's not true, or B, the difference, even if there is a difference, the difference isn't great enough to where, you know, we should be, you know, biting on a towel and sweating bullets because Lamar Jackson is a guy who has the propensity when things break down not to go to receiver number four or five, but to go ahead and use his physical gifts to uh, make things happen. So if I'm the if I'm the Ravens, Ravens organization, especially if I'm Jim Harbaugh, I don't give a damn about what's going to be happening five, six, seven, eight years down the road. I might not even be the coach of that team five, six, seven, eight years down the road. I'm thinking about what I need to do to win a football game today, right now, 2020 to 2020 NFL season. And if it means Lamar Jackson running for 141 yards on nine carries and only throwing for a buck 50 or something like that, fine, no problem. As long as we win the football game, that's the only thing that I'm concerned about. That's the only 
thing the Ravens should be concerned about. Long-term, long-term investments. Hey, I've never seen, I haven't seen yet something on the board from Vegas talking about what are the odds, who's going to be the top five, who's going to be the NFL MVP, who's going to be the best quarterback in the year 2025. Get your long-term odds placed right now. So there's nothing like that in Vegas. So people up there worried about what's Lamar Jackson going to be five, six years from now when some of his physical gifts start to decline. Well, let's just kind of enjoy what we're seeing right now from Lamar Jackson. Came out of the locker room in the game against the uh, Browns on Monday night because the backup Marley McSorley tore his knee where? In the pocket. Thank you. And he came in on fourth down and, and made, a key, uh, made a key pass on the run to the right to John Brown, which uh, ultimately uh, put them in the position to win the football game. So the Baltimore Ravens, what, it was a little. It's a little bit surprising the fact that their defense was so shoddy against the Browns. The fact that what there were thirty-five points scored between those two teams in the fourth quarter. But a marvelous football game. If you're the Cleveland Browns, I would be feeling rather good. I know that they don't give out uh, trophies for second place and participation in the NFL, but the fact that this was a team in Baltimore who, in week one, stomped you and embarrassed you. The fact that you came back and played and did so well against those guys. It looks like they have an offense now to where if they get hot, they've shown that they can uh, play with the best of the best in terms of offenses are concerned. So when you go up against a Pittsburgh Steeler offense, or when you go up against a team like Kansas City or Buffalo who, or Baltimore, whoever that you're going to be playing in the playoffs, you have a defense that might not be able to withstand, uh, that might not be able to try to win a game defensively, but you have an offense now that can put some points on the board. So, we, you know what? Scoring 35 points and winning a game 35-31 doesn't seem all that facetious if you're speaking about the Cleveland Browns moving forward in Baker Mayfield, despite throwing that one interception uh, near the goal uh, in the uh, in the um, fourth quarter, played a really good football game. Looks like, again, he's turned the corner in terms of his maturity, in terms of his professionalism, in terms of what's important or what's not important. No more bullshit about, you know, childish feuds and war of words with Hugh Jackson and Rex Ryan and worrying what the media thinks and all that bullshit. Don't worry about all that nonsense, man. They'll go Mitchell Trubisky on the uh, on us with Trubisky talking about last year. You know, we need to turn off the televisions in the uh, training rooms and at the facilities because everything about the Bears and me is so negative and we don't need that around us. So, you know, we need to turn that off because it affects our play with all this negativity around. And that's going to be your leader? What the fuck? Speaking about the Bears and Mitchell Trubisky. So, on a mental level, Breaker Mayfield has gotten past that, and I'm glad that he, uh, I'm glad that he is, uh, for at least for the Cleveland Brown fans, because I don't, I don't think that Baker Mayfield is going to be an elite franchise quarterback, but the way he's playing now, and if he continues to progress, like getting back on track like he did in his rookie season, where he set an NFL record for throwing 27 touchdown passes, if he can get back on track to the potential type of quarterback that he was going to become then, then I think Baker Mayfield is good enough to lead a football team, namely the Cleveland Browns, to a Super Bowl championship. I think the way Baker Mayfield is playing, the projection points toward a quarterback who can win a team uh, a championship. And that's all you want from a quarterback, especially Mayfield who was taken number one. Wendell's World of Sports, when, um, your host Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So those are things I'm going to be getting more into. I just 
you know, wanted to hit football. Football's important. Football is king. Football is important. Here in America, here in the racist states of America, here in the divided states of America, here in the ignorant states of America, here in the selfish states of America, football is numero uno. It's number one. So if you neglect talking about uh, football, the pro level, then people are going to be taking a look at you talking about, wait a minute, talking about what's going on in the world of sports and this motherfucker doesn't even talk about what's happening in the NFL. This guy doesn't touch about what's happening with the Pittsburgh Steelers losing two games in a row. This guy doesn't even mention the Monday night football game, which arguably with the game of the year in Cleveland and Baltimore, he doesn't even talk about that. This guy's talking about Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, talking about what's going on in the world of sports. Say, what? What world are you in? What world is Wendell Wallace world in? Mars? Jupiter? Uranus? So there you go. Oh, do you hear that? Hold on for a second. Hold on. I'm still talking about sports, but hold on for a second. Oh, it's raining. Oh, it's raining. Oh, finally, after I don't know how many countless days out here in Vegas, we finally have some rain. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Woo! Finally. So I'm going to do this. I'm finished talking about the NFL. Today on the podcast, I'm also going to be discussing the fallout from Auburn University. Gauss Malzone is no longer the coach at Auburn. I want to break down and discuss that. I also want to talk about Giannis Adenokupo signing his five-year, 200 plus million dollar contract extension to stay with the Milwaukee Bucks. What does that mean for the Dallas Mavericks? What does that mean for the Miami Heat? What does that mean for all the suitors who were planning to swoop in with the cap space and making moves to free up cap space so they could go ahead and make an offer to try to get a Dinakupo? I'll talk about that. Also want to talk about the James Harden situation back at Houston. Back in Houston. Played his first game against the San Antonio Spurs exhibition game, 12 points, 21 minutes. I guess you could say he was looking a little chunky for being a world-class athlete. I'm going to get into exactly whose fault is it for James Harden's situation. And what I'm talking about, um, Tim McMahon of ESPN wrote a really good article about how James Harden basically ran the franchise. When you leave, when you eat, when you practice, the laissez-faire type of uh, attitude, the laissez-faire, the non-professional type of atmosphere that was presented in Houston, how that affected such guys as Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook and how now Houston is a mess because James Harden was talking about get me this guy, get me that guy, and to do that, they had to trade away this guy and they had to, uh, uh, you know, forfeit picks and trade away picks. So now, basically, James Harden, by saying that get me out of Houston, he's basically screwed the franchise. Because we bent over backwards and mortgaged our future to make you happy, and now you want out? So whose fault exactly is it that the organization allowed James Harden to do whatever James Harden wanted to do? And at the bottom line, I know people are going to say, you know, could you make the comparison? Well, you know, if you give a kid, if, you know, you let a kid run wild for years and years and years, and then you finally tell him to stop, and he looks at you like you're crazy, you can't blame the kid for uh, the reaction, if you for years let the guy run wild, that's your fault. But then again, there was an argument to say, yeah, James Harden liked the party. Yeah, James Harden liked to uh, do this and do that. But I tell you what, James Harden can go out get a you know in a game. If they had a game in L.A., if they had a game in Phoenix, and they were going to not play for a couple of days, and James was like, we're going to stay in Phoenix. Well, you guys are going to stay in Phoenix. I'm going to take a plane, and I'm going to go to L.A. and party. I'm going to go to Vegas and party. If they were in Orlando, if they were in, uh, you know, 
in other parts of Miami. You know what? We're going to stay over. We're going to stay over and I'm going to go down to South Beach. I'm going to party. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to party in uh, Atlanta. If they were somewhere, you know, playing against the, I don't know, maybe the, the Washington Wizards or maybe the Indianapolis Pacers or or the Boston Celtics, and they had a couple of days, James was going to be like, you know, guess what? I'm chartering a, a flight down to New York City where I could spend an evening partying. That might be wrong. That might be horrible. That might be terrible. But when the guy comes back on five hours of sleep and puts up a 50-point triple-double, can you really blame him? I mean, can you really sit there and be angry? Especially when a guy who didn't know the meaning of load management, he wasn't about that. James Harden was going to play every single night. He was going to average about 35, 36, 37 minutes a game. He took a morbid franchise in Houston that was going nowhere and for eight seasons, led him to conference finals and led him to the playoffs. So at the end of the day, with all of this hand-wringing and all of this shame on James for running the franchise like he did in the Houston organization, giving James Harden the opportunity to run the organization like he did. When everything is all said and done, I mean, you could say that, well, it was a success because we went from nothing before James Harden to something with him. Now, James Harden took an inch and took it a marathon, but still, the his lifestyle or his lack of professionalism or his, his, his divaism really didn't cause the franchise to go off a cliff during those times. It was dysfunctional, but it was dysfunctional with a lot of wins and James Harden being one of the three best players in the league and playing like it, at least during a regular season. So I'll get into uh, all that. Also want to speak about my Georgetown Hoyas, 97-94 victory, overtime victory over St. John's, their first Big East win. They're going to be playing St. John's on Sunday. Getting the Dante Harris and Cutis Wahab, hip hip hooray. The future looks, I don't know, salvageable with Georgetown, with those two guys. I know it was against St. John's, but you know what? In the limited moments that he had against Villanova, I thought Dante Harris played well. And Cutis looks like a guy who could be an all Big East center by his junior and senior seasons. So that's something to look forward to. We got to get these uh, young guys ready. Thank you, goodness gracious, that TJ Berger came in and played well in the eight minutes that he was allowed. Now, if we could do something with Chudier Bilay being planted on the bench, Coach Ewing, I think that would also be very advantageous when Kobe, when Kobe Clark gets ready to play, when Jabbar Sibley continues to earn some minutes. Let's see if that could be cutting into the minutes by Chudier. Get into that. Also want to get into uh, a lot of things I want to get into, huh? There's also, I want to get into um, this uh, Keontae Johnson. Forward for Florida. Florida's uh, basketball team. University of Florida's basketball team. He collapsed. Thank Jesus that uh, he's looks like that he's going to make it. The thing that bothered me was the fact that after he collapsed on the court in the in the opening minutes or in the early part of their game against Florida State and he had to be stretchered out. He was unconscious. We didn't know if the man was living or, or dying. We didn't know exactly what happened. The fact that after that happened, the game continued. That's appalling. That's ridiculous. That's mind-blowing. That's idiotic. That's derelict in your duties. Everybody involved. I mean, Leonard Hamilton, who I think is a fine, outstanding man, former head coach of the Washington Wizards back in the day before MJ took over the president of basketball operations with the team. But you take a look at someone like Leonard Hamilton, who's a who's a veteran, a decade's worth of experience coaching, 
in college basketball. You take a look at someone like Mike White, the head coach for Florida. How, how, how do you not, how do you not call that game off? How do you not say, look, man, we're not playing. I know the Florida players wanted to play and all that kind of nonsense. No. No, in a situation like this, we're not asking the players for this, man. We're, no, no, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. And there's presidents, unfortunately, to show that, you know what, when something like this happened, not only did the game, not only was the game called off, but the tournament that that team was in, that tournament was postponed for a college basketball. The conference tournament was postponed. So I, 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 I don't understand that. And then I also want to end with, um, <laughs> karma is a bitch to a coonerism bitch. Bye bye, Sage Steel. Can't wait for to see that bitch leave uh, ESPN's the uh, six o'clock uh, ESPN Sports Center. I don't. I barely watch Sports Center now, but uh, the fact that she's going to be replaced with L. Duncan shows you that uh, karma is something. And I'll explain my. Uh, I mean, I don't hate. I don't hate Sage Steel. I've never met Sage Steel, but some of the things that uh, she's done and said, and the way that she presents herself for me. The way I look at her from afar, from the knowledge that I know of her, I'll tell you why I have such animus uh, towards Sage Steele. So all of that's, all of these topics and so much more is going to be happening on Wendell's World of Sports. It's raining outside, y'all. Woo! In Las Vegas, here on the Wednesday afternoon, with the sun going down, it's raining in Vegas. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Shalom. Konnichiwa. Que pasa. Bonjour. So glad that you could be with us. I am dancing on the ceiling like I'm Lionel Richie because it is finally raining out here in Las Vegas. It was a absolutely brutal summer. And I understand, look, you know, there's folks who listen to my podcast. First of all, thank you very much. Who listen to my podcast in Pennsylvania, in New York, where, you know, you know, winter storm gale is uh, kicking y'all's ass. So for you guys listening to this program and you hear me talking about, it's raining outside, it's raining outside. Isn't that wonderful? I'm quite sure, I'm quite sure right now y'all are saying, man, fuck you, man. This, that, you, know, you guys are stuck inside because it's snowing. But I will say this. I do... Being from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, the best place to live, the best place to grow up, the best place to raise your children, even now. The place that ultimately, whenever uh, my time comes to leave this world that we live in, that we are living in, I want to call all the Maryland and leisure world my home, still trying to uh, get back to that retirement community the day when I hit the age retirement uh, uh, limit. But... um. 
I do miss the change of seasons. I really do. I, I miss the snow. I miss the rain. I miss the leaves changing colors. I miss grass. I uh, I just miss it. I really do. And I never thought I would miss rain. I never thought that I would behave this way when when there would be rain showers, when there would be droplets fr- uh, f- uh, coming from the sky to where I would just stop what I was doing and run outside. Like, you know, like Eddie Murphy talking about delirious with the ice cream truck, with the ice cream man, when people just stop what they're doing and run out because of ice cream. Well, that's the same thing with me with, with it's raining. So, you know, it's like I'm a giddy little kid every time there's raindrops falling on the ground because and out here in Vegas, man, you, you don't know. I don't know when this is going to be happening again. I have no idea, and we might not. We might not be able to see a drop of rainfall from the sky right now. It's December seventeenth. We might not see another drop fall from the sky, which is rain, for I don't know three, four, five, six months. You have no idea out here. Every single day, I don't think it's really rained out here in Vegas since May, and like every single fucking day, sunny and hot, sunny and hot, sunny and hot, sunny and hot. It's like, yeah, can we get something else, man? Can we? a little variety can we get maybe cloudy can we get maybe windy can we get maybe overcast can we get something it just seemed like day after day week after week month after month and now here it hit like 116 117 112 110 and every single fucking day with the same thing sunny and hot sunny and hot sunny and hot sunny and hot I'm not blaming anybody it's just the way it is living in the desert i knew what i was getting into when i moved out here especially when I spent a couple of years in Phoenix, so from 1999 to now 2020, I understand what it's all about living in a desert. You know, rain doesn't come that often, but uh, I, um, I I greatly enjoy it when it does. And like I said, inclement weather, when uh, I wouldn't mind seeing some snow on the ground. I only live like 20, 25 minutes, 25 miles outside of uh, Mount Charleston. All I need to do is get on the 95, go up a couple of exits, and then make that left heading on up to the mountain. It's only going to take me like a half an hour. So maybe tomorrow after uh, work, I'll go up and uh, see what the damage is done in terms of this rain. Because if it's raining down here, I know that it's snowing up in Mount Charleston. So you know, maybe I'll go ahead and uh, feed my yearning to see some snow and some cold weather and that type of thing heading up there. But I don't know. Let's see if I can make it through the night and then we'll worry about tomorrow when it happens. Um, nobody's promised tomorrow, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World of Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about now what's happening. I'm not getting into, man, this college football bullshit top four, which remained the same. You had Alabama, Notre Dame, Clemson, um, Ohio State with five wins. On my last podcast, I talked about why is Ohio State playing this conference championship tomorrow or Saturday. I have no idea. Uh, It's just a lose-lose situation. If they win, big deal. They ain't, well, they might, they might leapfrog the loser of the Clemson Notre Dame game. If it's a, if it's a tough game, it's a hard fought game. If, say, for instance, Notre Dame loses in double overtime or some nonsense like that, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have Notre Dame fall. But depending upon the way, if, if Ohio State is just convincing, not overwhelming, not dominant, Against Northwestern, if they win 24 to 14, or if they win, you know, 35 to 17, or some nonsense like that, and Notre Dame loses against Clemson 42 to 39 in overtime, I'm, I'm not going to uh, change the 
the seedings at all in terms of who are the top four teams. I'm still going to have the fact that Ohio State only played six games should allow them to only be as high as number four, especially when you see the number of games that Clemson and Notre Dame played. Now with the loss of a Florida losing to LSU the week before, let's say for instance that Notre Dame beats Clemson again in this, and it's a tight game. Do you then move Clemson out of the playoff contention and then put in someone like a Texas A&M? Again, because we have a committee that's bullshit, because we have rules that are bullshit, because we have this formulaic equality that no one knows about, even that no one has an understanding of, even the people who are making the decisions who are the top four teams in college football, because we have no idea how they come to that conclusion, I don't know. How, what's your definition of the top four teams in college football? Because if, it's, if, if your definition is the same as mine, then for the most part, yeah, the committee got it right. Alabama, regardless of what happens in the SEC championship game, Notre Dame, Clemson, regardless of what happens in the ACC championship game, including if Clemson loses, and then Ohio State. Those are typically the four best teams if we're just going on who are the quote-unquote four best teams in college football. As of right now, you would have to say those four teams and losing Alabama, losing to Clemson again, unless they get completely blown out, which I don't think they will. I think they'll be the ones doing the blowing out. Then they should be the number one ranked team in the country. But how in the world, say, for instance, if Clemson loses another close game in Notre Dame, are you going to kick them out of the uh, college football playoffs and put them and put in what Texas A&M? Do you really think that Texas A&M is better than Clemson? Well, they lost one game and Clemson has lost two. Okay, so what formula are we going by that then? So are we just going by wins and losses? Because if we're just going by wins and losses, how was Notre Dame who lost one game still in the top four and we have Cincinnati who's undefeated? They're slipping at number nine. How can we have a team in Iowa State who lost two games moving ahead of Cincinnati, a team who hasn't lost at all? And we're just going based on the facts of, you know, best record and that type of thing. Now, I, I understand it's a conglomerate of issues in terms of deciding who the top four teams are yes they go by strength of schedule yes they go by records yes they go by who has the most four and five star recruits on their team they go by talent and all those things yes i know all those things are put into the recipe when they're trying to bake and come up with the meal of who are the top four teams in college football thank you for that analogy because i watch way too much beat bobby flay i watch way too much chop i watch way too much guy grocery games and i watch way too much dining drivers di drivers diving and whatever the fuck that thing is called on friday night but basically what i'm trying to say is the fact that how in the, i don't i don't know i don't understand how those guys come up with the top four teams to me is just based on who are the most four, who are the four most talented teams in the country. That's what it comes up with. And if that's the case, why do you need all these athletic directors to come up with that nonsense? I mean, hell, college football, college sports has already bastardized themselves. We already know that the game is up. We already know what a sham it is. We already know the hypocrisy. We already know that the term student athlete is complete and utter bullshit. I would be more comfortable, I would be more secure, I would be more in favor of having the folks in Vegas who set the betting lines come up with the top four teams in college football. I would rather have Phil Steele come up with the top four teams in college football than these yahoos are sitting there uh, every week uh, trying to, these, these ADs 
We're trying to find out who the top four teams are. And look, I understand they're more than just the top four teams. They have to go through the entire top 25. But then again, after the top four, who really gives a fuck? You think Iowa, Iowa State is up there, you know, in jubilation because they're going to be number six? You think Oklahoma or you think Coastal Carolina or you think Cincinnati? I mean, this motherfucker comes out on the Reese Davis show when they're talking about, you know, teams falling up, falling down and all this type of thing to the college football playoff show and you know they're starting off with Reese Davis talks about well you know what about Cincinnati how in the world can Cincinnati who was undefeated how can they be falling or how can they be slipping in the rankings or how can they be passed by Iowa State who has two losses how do you explain that and then this ass clown starts off with well you know we respect Cincinnati we think they're a fine football team and I, I hate when mother I hate when they do that shit Oh, you know, it's like when your girlfriend breaks up with you and and she starts off with, you know what, I think you're great. I think you're wonderful. I think that, you know, you're going to make someone really happy. And, you know, you're just a really swell guy. And our time together has been the best time of my life. But, you know, I'm breaking up with you and going with your best friend. Take it easy. I mean, what? Or 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 when you and I've I've experienced this plenty. When you walk into the boss's office and he sits down and he says, first of all, I just want to say that you're a great guy. And we've really enjoyed having you here. You worked hard. We appreciate all the hard work that you did. And I know that you're going to bounce back. I know that you're going to make a, I know that, um, you know, in your next position, you are going to be a superstar. You're going to be a rock star. You have so much talent, this, that, and the other. So they butter, butter you up just to say, and you're fired. <laughs> well, man, save me the bullshit about how wonderful I am. And just tell me that I'm fired and move on. <laughs> just, you know. We don't want you here anymore. Your production sucks. You're an asshole. We're firing you. Goodbye. Take a hike. You know, with the female. Don't sit there and talk about what a great guy I am. Am I bad in bed? Am my dick too small? I mean, you found somebody else just because I'm black. Uh, well, you know, I'm like, you know, I, I got too many wrinkles. My potential earning power isn't enough. You found someone better. I mean, just tell me the truth and then move on. And then let me deal in my misery and, and, and waller, you know. So that's the same deal with... um Cincinnati, you know, this guy talking about, well, we think Cincinnati's the fine football team. And they're just, fuck, just, just, just go out and say, well, you know, Cincinnati's the mid-major. They're not as good as the teams in the Power Five conferences. So despite the fact that Iowa State has two losses, they lost early in the season. They've rebounded. They played well. And we just think that they're a better team than Cincinnati. So, sorry. Well, they beat Tulsa. They beat SMU. And the guy will say, well, who gives a fuck? <laughs> we still think, we still think, um, those teams that we just mentioned, the Florida, the Georgia, the Texas A&M, because they play in the SEC, because we think those teams in the SEC are better than any team that Cincinnati has played. Because of that, we don't really give a damn that they won all their games. Big deal. If you put Georgia in the same situation, if you put Georgia, Florida, Texas A&M, you give them the same schedule that Cincinnati has, guess what? Those teams are going to be undefeated. And if you, if you give the schedule that Say, for instance, Texas A&M had the Cincinnati. You don't think that they would get blown out by Alabama? Of course they wouldn't. So we wouldn't even be having this discussion. So that's the reason why Cincinnati is number nine. And that's the reason why uh, Texas A&M is number five. So, you know, suck my dick and call me Rick. So that's, that's, that's all that guy needs to say. Seriously, that's all he needs to say. So, you know, all of this other stuff about this, you know, I, I, I just... And believe me, all the other bowl games and the second tier bowl games, who cares, man? I, you know, just give me who the top four teams are and let's move on. The country, the college football public 
wants to see the four teams currently in the top four positions play in the college football playoff. So unless something ridiculous happens and Northwestern beats um, Ohio State, then, you know, that's what we're going to be getting. Or if Notre Dame beats Clemson, and as I mentioned before, if it's a tight game, are you really, are the, is the selection committee really going to have the stones to um, eliminate Clemson from the college football playoff? We'll see. We'll see. But, you know, we'll, we will see. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Auburn, University of Auburn, now there in Alabama. Fired head coach Gus Malzahn. The decision comes less than 24 hours. After the Tigers finished the regular season with a 6-4 record after beating Missouri, or I'm sorry, not Missouri, Mississippi State, 24-10 on Saturday. The decision, I guess, you could probably say that, you know, I mean, you have Gus Malzahn dancing in the uh, locker room, and then 24 hours later, he's dancing out the door uh, with his um, fat, with his, uh, with his fat buyout check, and which you'll be getting in about four weeks. But uh, I think the decision to fire Malzahn was probably made, or I guess the final nail in the coffin was was issued after their loss to Alabama two weeks ago, 42-13 in the Iron Bowl, in a game that really wasn't that close. They looked around and said, what the fuck are we doing? How much are we paying this guy? We didn't want him here in the first place. We thought we had lightning in a bottle after 2017 where he had that miraculous run. But our mistake, let's move on to something else. So according to Brett McMurphy of the stadium, defensive coordinator Kevin Steele is going to serve as the interim head coach. Uh, Auburn has a game this upcoming weekend, and according to ESPN's Field Yates, Malzahn is going to receive a, wait for it, here in a pandemic where people are losing their homes, where people are losing their jobs, where their health care and their uh, health finances are going through the roof. Malzahn, to go away, will receive a $21.45 million buyout that is going to be Paid in full like Eric B. and Rakim's first album. Wow. <laughs> Good gig if you can get it. If you want to fire me and give me $21 million, I'll be more than happy to. Get my place over at the Catalina Islands in, in um, Montgomery County, Maryland. Sit back, relax, and chill. Um, Malzone coached Auburn for eight seasons. He had a 68-35 record, six bowl games, a trip to the BCS National Championship game. His first season as coach in 2013. But after that, with Nick Marshall... Nick Marshall and all these other guys, Mulzone coming over from first high school over in Arkansas, and then he served as the offensive coordinator for Arkansas for a couple of years, and then he was the offensive coordinator for Auburn, and you know he was this guy with this fast-paced, up-tempo offense, and he was going to revolutionize the game of football from an offensive standpoint. So when he became the head coach of Auburn in 2013, no one had seen this before. Good God Almighty, good God Almighty, as Jim, as Jim Ross would say, they went ahead, waited to the championship game, lost in Florida State, but, you know, good times were coming. But after that, Auburn has failed to win an SEC title. They've tied for the SEC West Division title in 2017, but other than that, they've never won it outright. And uh, that 2017 year, they lost to Georgia in the SEC championship game, and basically that's it. And when you start putting down the reasons of why Malzone was fired, because you're thinking, man, 38, I mean, uh, 68 and 35, I mean, that's not horrible. That's not terrible. I mean, if Malzone was black and he got fired from Auburn with a 68 and 35 record, man, we'd be, black folks would be losing their minds up there talking some nonsense, like, how could that happen? Black folk, black coaches getting screwed again and all that kind of stuff, which they do, by the way. I'm not saying that that's not a valid um, 
that's not a valid discussion point, but I mean, you know, 68-35, and 35, that's, uh, in eight seasons, you take a team to the championship game less than 10 years, um, you know, in 2013, which is less than 10 years, and you're already being fired, 2017, you're you uh, beat Alabama. You were number one team in the country. You make it to the SEC championship game, and then two year late, two year years later, you're fired. Again, if this guy was black, I would be the one out there shouting and screaming about this is bullshit. How black coaches are being treated, and this is one prime example of how that went down. But Malzahn, you know, a lot of things. Again, once you pull back the layers, devils in the details. Once you read the fine print, once you go a little bit deeper. You'll see. He struggled against the top SEC teams. He went 8-17 and 17 against Alabama, Georgia, and LSU. After getting to the championship game, as I mentioned before, his first year in 2013, he was 20-24 and 24 against teams with a winning record. He also went 3-5 and five in the crucial Iron Bowl matchups. Now, yeah, he was below 500. But damn, you know, three wins against Nick Saban? Can you name any other coach in that time period? Can you name any other coach in the SEC who has as many wins as uh, Gus Malzahn has against Nick Saban? Les Miles doesn't. Ed Orgeron doesn't. Hughes Freeze doesn't. Jeremy Pruitt doesn't. Mark Rick doesn't. Can you name anybody else? Derek Mason certainly doesn't. <laughs> Derek Mason certainly doesn't. <laughs> I don't think Derek Mason has won three games against anybody. During his tenure at Vanderbilt. But then what I'm saying is that, so, I mean, again, I keep bringing it back. You know, when we're discussing these things, we got to have some context. We got to have all of our, um, you know, we got to have all of our situations notified and understood and, and checked off on all of those type of things. Gus Malzahn went three and five against Nick Saban. That's not a detriment. That's a, that's an attaboy. Again, Malzahn with a black. And he went three and five against Nick Saban, the great Nick Saban, which again, no other coach has done. And he got fired. You damn right. I'd be screaming. This is bullshit. This is bloody bullshit. And this is the problem with college sports and college football, especially if we're talking about the SEC and the state like Alabama, that the black man really never had a chance to blah, blah, blah. And blee, blee, blee. Yeah. I'd be the first one saying that shit. But context. Last time I checked, Gus Malzahn is white. 68 and 35, three and five against Nick Saban in eight seasons. And he gets fired. And he gets fired. And really, this was a guy who was, I guess you could say, he went from being the darling after 2013, how well he did with the program, to by 2017, they were ready to let him go. If you think about it, he was very fortunate that he even had an opportunity for the success that he had with Auburn in 2017. I mean, there's rumblings like, look, after 2016, it's like, Look, should we fire him? Do you want to fire him? We probably should fire him. But you know what? After 2017, when he blows, it'll give us a better opportunity. It'll give us more ammunition. It'll give us more reasons uh, to fire him. You know, it'll make our argument stronger on why we need to fire him. Well, guess what he did in 2017? Because there was speculation like, you know what, Malzone, the way they're treating you. Man, if I were you, I would just go over to Arkansas. You're from Arkansas. You started your... Coaching career in Arkansas, I mean, just go back and revitalize that program. They don't appreciate appreciate you out here in Auburn. Tell those guys to go fuck themselves and go to a place where you're appreciated. Gus was like, no, I'm cool, I'm good, I'm going to stay here. You know, I've got this and I've got that. Well, he was on the hot seat going into the 2017 season. So guess what he did? 
He led the Tigers to the SEC championship game. He defeated number one ranked Georgia and then number one ranked Alabama in the, in the span of three weeks. Do you remember that? And then in a rematch with the uh, Bulldogs, he uh, lost 28 to seven. And then I think he did, I think he won the Sugar Bowl or he played in the Sugar Bowl or I know they went to the Sugar Bowl, but they had a really good season. So, you know, on that sugar high that Auburn had with the success and I don't understand the complete 180 that the Auburn administration, the boosters or whoever, the fan base or whoever did on Malzahn just based on that 27-17 season. They went from looking to fire his ass to giving him a seven-year, $49 million contract, which shocked and surprised everybody who was a fan of college football. So, you know, it was a situation where, hey, you know what? He... Beat Notre, he beat Georgia, he beat Alabama, we've got something here, sign of long term, and then 2018, 2019, it came back to, oh shit, yeah, we made a mistake, and they got rid of him. They got rid of him. I think it's just a, another situation here on Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. Speaking about Gus Malzahn being fired from Auburn, I think it's just a situation where this was another offensive genius whose sequel was never as good as the original. It's almost like he, this is the same, this is the, like the offensive genius coaching tree. You know, these guys like Chip Kelly who come in here and they have all these outside the box and innovative ideas and stuff that's going to translate to the 21st century and a new way, new uh, way of thinking and feeling and doing things and all these type of things. And they start off really well and they set the world on fire. And then guess what? Defensive coordinators finally catch up to their offense. And because these guys think that they're the smartest guys in the room, they don't really need to change, that they basically stay the same. And then they wonder why they're not having the same success because the defensive coordinators in these schools, um, they adapt and they change and they adjust. And for the most part, Chip Kelly really didn't. For the most part, I mean, his whole philosophy is basically the same. And now... You know, we don't know what the situation is at UCLA after him bombing with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, same thing with Gus Malzahn. I mean, here was a guy who, you know, quarterback guru, offensive genius. Well, after that 2013 championship game where he had Nick Marshall at the quarterback, he never really developed any quarterbacks. Jeremy Johnson, and he was the offensive coordinator when Cam Newton won the Heisman Trophy. So it was like, obviously, this guy... His strength is building great quarterbacks, great college quarterbacks. I mean, with his offense. Well, when he became head coach after 2013 and Nick Marshall left, he never did that. Jeremy Johnson was a four-star top 30 high school All-American recruit. This guy was supposed to be the heir apparent to Cam Newton. He was big. He was strong. He was, I think, one of the top two or three dual-threat quarterbacks coming out of high school. This guy, for four years, sat behind Nick Marshall and Sean White, never materialized into anything. Last time we seen or heard of Jeremy Johnson was April of 2019 when he was with the West Virginia Rough Riders of the American uh, Arena League. Sean White was supposed to be a guy who Gus Malzahn could mold into a really good college quarterback. He was arrested for public intoxication and was kicked off the team. He never played college football again. Then you had John Franklin III who transferred from... I think it was Florida State, and he went to East Community, East Mississippi Community College. Man, was that guy a fucking asshole on, on that show. He transferred over to Florida Atlantic, and then he switched to wide receiver. And now I think he's on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers practice squad, or Chicago Bears practice squad, one of those two, trying to get on the team full-time as a wide receiver. 
He never developed into anything. Jared Stidham was a five-star recruit who transferred from Baylor. And when he transferred, I mean, the hype around Auburn was, oh, man, this is the guy that's going to lead Auburn back to the promised land. This is the guy that's going to solve all the quarterback ills and woes for the Auburn football team. And this guy's going to do this and all of these lofty heights and expectations that uh, Auburn football had because Jared Stidham was coming their way. He never lived up to the hype. And we see now in the NFL how much he struggled uh, with the New England Patriots. Even Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick can't turn him into something. Then, Gus Malzahn got himself Bo Nix. This was a guy highly recruited from Pinson, Alabama. Pinson, Alabama. This guy was one of these, you know, lifelong arc, um, uh, Auburn fan. And his main dream was to play for the Auburn Tigers and blah, blah, blah. And his skill set and what he did fit perfectly like a fucking glove. I'm not talking about OJ's glove. I'm talking about like a perfect glove, a perfect fit. And this was supposed to be the guy that was going to lead Auburn back to the promised land. Finally, Gus Malzahn got himself the perfect quarterback that he could work with. Well, Bo Nix, who, I mean, seemed like he's been in college for four years, or he's been in college for 15 years, the way they talk about him, had a really good you know, start to his career with a comeback victory over Oregon and a battle of top 10, top 15 schools a couple of years ago. But Bo Nix has regressed every year. I don't even know what, is he a sophomore or a junior? I mean, this guy seems like he's been part of the lexicon of college football for so long. It's like, man, how long have we been talking about this guy? Again, him and Sam Ellinger, the quarterback at Texas. It just seemed like they've been in college for like eight years. But here was a guy in Bo Nix who couldn't get anything going. And you take a look at it. I mean, each year, the Auburn offense, which was supposed to be high tempo and supposed to be innovative, was supposed to be breaking all these records and doing all these type of things. The pace and the tempo and the production, it went down and down and down and down. So it's like, okay, that's nice. And remember, you sign that contract extension, you're making $7 million a year. Um, you're supposed to be able to compete and beat the Floridas and the Georgias and the Texas A&Ms. And you should be able to compete with the Alabamas. I think it's ridiculous if you take a look at a 3-5 and five record that, you know, that would be ground for dismissal. But if you take a look at some of the games, especially this past uh, game that Auburn lost to Alabama, the gap isn't isn't uh, decreasing; it's widening. So, on on one hand, yeah, I can I can see where you get your know, boosters that pay enough money. You know, you got some rich folks down there in Alabama; they can go ahead and buy that man out. Not my money that they're spending. So why do I give a fuck? And it's another deal when you talk about. Gus Malzone being fired, which I'm talking about here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with your host, Wendell Wallace. You know, if you're going to go ahead and you're going to have a, uh, if you're going to be an asshole as a human being, you better win. You better win. Bo Pelini found that out in, in Nebraska. You know, Bo Pelini, you couldn't, you couldn't be an asshole. You couldn't pe- treat people like shit. You couldn't be an asshole at the press conferences and go eight and four or seven and five and expect to get your job. To keep your job. That's the same thing with, with uh, Gus Malzone. Now, I'm not saying that this guy was a jerk, asshole, arrogant piece of shit. But what I'm saying is, is that when you're being described as paranoia, 
And normally when you're paranoid, look, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I'm just playing one on the podcast. But to me, if someone is paranoia, there's some like real insecurities there. And if you're running your program off of paranoia and insecurity, then something tells me that you're not ultimately going to be successful. So you've heard these stories about Malzahn, who once sent a member of the support staff out of practice because he graduated from the school Auburn was going to be playing that week. When one coach says that Malzahn made a habit of harping on scout team members about keeping game plans a secret from their family and friends, when you hear stories about he picked up the reputation of being difficult with NFL scouts restricting their access for fear of information that would leak concerning his offense, then what the fuck, man? I mean, you know, you can't... If you're Nick Saban, if you're having Nick Saban's success, if you're having Lincoln Riley's success... If you're having Ryan Day success before that, if you're having Urban Meyer success, yeah, then, you know, these things are looked on talking about, well, you know, this guy just wants to win and this guy is just this, that, and the other. I mean, you know, the, 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 the story that's being written about you, the plot that's being constructed about you is a lot different than if you're losing to, uh, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, uh, LSU in these seasons, you're 20 and 24 against teams worth a damn. I mean, that shit ain't going to fly if all you're doing is beating Mississippi, Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, Tennessee. Sorry, Tennessee. And uh, those type of squads and squads over 500 in your conference. I mean, if you're only doing that, you better be a little bit less. You better be a little bit more secure. You better be a little bit more. Hey, it's just a game. No big fucking deal. We ain't dealing with life and death here. But if you're doing that shit and you're getting your asses blown out. If you're losing 42 to 15 or however, you got blown out by Alabama and you're having a reputation of being difficult with NFL scouts, if I'm a guy, if I'm a recruit, if I'm a quarterback, if I'm anybody who can turn your program around, if you're trying to build a talent base for your football program that can beat an Alabama, that can beat an LSU on a consistent basis, and this is what's going on in terms of with NFL scouts, shit, if I'm Ed Orgeron, if I'm Nick Saban, if I'm um, Jeremy Pruitt, does he still have a job? If I'm Dan Mullen, if I'm any of those guys, and I'm recruiting the same player that Gus Malzahn is, I'm going into that guy's house. And I'm, hell yeah, I'm bringing up some shit like, you know, how difficult he is as far as with NFL scouts. How, if you go to my school, how open I am. The fact that we invite scouts in. We invite NFL scouts in on a daily to go ahead and take a look at our talent. We're very open. If you go to Auburn, it's going to be pulling teeth for any scouts to get to know you. And we're, we're talking about messing with your dream. We're talking about messing with your finances. We're, we're talking about this guy is going to be messing with your ability to go buy your mama a house and to make sure she ain't working no more and to take care of the your brothers and sisters and all that type of stuff. You really want to go to a school like that? You can go to my school and it'll be completely different. So yeah, if you speak about the talent base going down, you speak about all those other things and you add ammunition like that to uh, other coaches to use on recruits, and the players that they're getting, hell yeah, your program is going to fall down. Hell yeah, when it comes to competing against the top teams in the country and competing on a consistent basis against the top teams in the SEC West that you're going to be faltering and failing and flailing. So, yeah, just another guy who never adapted to uh, change. And and now he's out of the job. Now, look, again, $21.45 million dollars. Uh, that's nothing to be feeling sorry for, but I think Melzone is also a guy he can he can coach again. I mean, there's going to be some jobs opening up again. He can go ahead, fire him, and I'm not him. 
but I don't know what his agent is saying to him. But take that 21.4 mile, four or five mil next season, go ahead and uh, go to CBS, go to ESPN, go somewhere, go to Fox somewhere, you know, sit on the uh, talking head shows and talk about this and talk about that, rehabilitate your your uh, reputa- reputation in terms of being a coach. When some of these coaching positions might open up in the future, one or two years down the line, I mean, we're talking about jobs such as Texas, Michigan, maybe Stanford, maybe in a couple of years, LSU, maybe, possibly. When you're taking a look at those type of schools, I don't think Malzahn will get the top tier of those type of squads. But if you're looking at a second tier school in a Power 5 conference, I think Malzahn could be your coach. He might be, the guy for Arkansas is doing a good job right now. But a program, say, I, I think, I don't think that Malzahn, right off the bat, I don't think that he could take a, a, a top five, top ten type of program, football program. But I think he's better than a mid-major. I think he's better than, you know, a Cincinnati or an SMU or a Tulsa or something like that. I, I think that he's better than that. Um, Jeez, man. Are we speaking about maybe something like an Oregon State, a Washington State? Mississippi State. I'm, I'm speaking about the level of programs. I know those guys have coaches, Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin, even though we don't know how long Lane Kiffin is going to be down there in Mississippi State but or Mississippi, wherever he's down. But, I mean, I'm talking about those type of programs. I mean, like a Georgia Tech type. Um, who else? Maybe like a Texas Tech type. One of those type of programs. I think Malzahn would fit. A program like that, well, I mean, Hugh Freeze, when he got fired from Ole Miss, basically a lot of it's based on what he did, you know, off the gridiron, some of the flaws that he had in terms of uh, breaking rules. But, I mean, you know, Mal, um, uh, Hugh Freeze got a job at uh, Liberty, and he's doing well. And by all indications, it looks like he's going to be the leading candidate for the job at Auburn, him and Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator. So I think that there's a path for. Gus Malzahn in a year or two to get back into coaching, if that's what he wants. Again, it's no rush when you're getting the type of buyout that he's getting. So, you know, there is a, there is a playbook. There is a pamphlet. There is a instructions manual that he can use to uh, get back into coaching and to get his name and to get his coaching reputation and everything back up to uh, status quo. Go on these, you know, hang out with Joey Galloway and, Dave Repson and Dave Repson's in the Big Ten Network. Excuse me. Go out and hang out with um, Jesse Palmer and <clears throat> and um, Joey Galloway and hang out with those type of guys. Hang out with Urban Meyer and Reggie Bush and Matt Leinart and those guys and you know talk and sound smart and do quarterback. Um, you know, do uh, uh, armchair quarterbacking and uh, yeah, you go ahead and you can go ahead and do that. Hang out with Rick Neuheisel and. Uh, do that type of stuff. So there you go. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So again, what type of job is Auburn? Because when I'm taking a look and I'm thinking about that head coaching position, it's not, for in my estimation, it's not something like an Ohio State or a Texas or a Notre Dame or Michigan, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma. Nick Saban isn't coming to your program. Urban Meyer isn't coming to your program. 
Those type of those type of guys, those type of coaches are not going to your program. Um, you know, when you take a look at Auburn and you think about what makes a really good coaching position, what makes a really good coaching job, I would have to think the access to talent, the program's infrastructure, the administrators, what type of support are you going to be getting from the administrators, the boosters, how realistic are the fans, how passionate are the fans. They want nice facilities. If I'm going to be going up against Clemson, you can't be giving me facilities which ain't got nothing in terms of what could be competing. You have to know the expectations of the job. What what are you looking from me? For Auburn, it's like, look, we want you to compete with Alabama. We want you to compete with LSU. We want to be competing for the national championships. We want you to be at that level. We want you to be at the Ohio States and the Notre Dame and the Texas. I don't think Auburn is that job. I think they're in the same group as an Oregon, a Michigan State, a, a Penn State, a Florida State, a Texas A&M. Schools that can win championships without question. I mean, you take a look at Auburn. You take a look at the where, uh, where they are recruiting-wise. You take a look at the uh, conference that they're in. You take a look at their history. I, I think Auburn football program has that pedigree to where you can win a championship. Say in a 10-year span, you can win two or three national championships if you get the right coach in there and everything falls into place. But... If you're the fan base that's expecting Auburn to, in that 10-year span, win four or five championships and be in contention the other two to three years, with maybe a down year being nine and three, that's not Auburn's program. I don't think, I mean, again, you're in the toughest division in college football when you're speaking about the SEC. Nick Saban ain't going anywhere. That man might be 68 years old. That man's going to bare brain himself in terms of his coaching. He's going to coach, and then and then a week later, he's going to croak. I'm not wishing that or anything, but what I'm saying is that Nick Saban is not the type of coach from what he's been saying and what people who know him say, and he's not the type of guy that's going to, uh, you know, say, oh, yeah, I won eight national championships, and while I'm still in good health and everything, I'm just going to, uh, you know, kick it, yes, I can, on my houseboat and, and relax and chill. No, that's not Nick Saban. Nick Saban, I think, is going to coach until he physically cannot do it anymore. And if he's going to be able to, if he's going to be of that mindset, Alabama ain't going nowhere as far as the national power is concerned. I think Ed Orgeron, up in the air with him, man. But you're talking about LSU. You're talking about the facilities. You're talking about the history. You're talking about the fan base. That should be a team every single year. You're speaking about the uh, recruiting budget that those guys have. You're speaking about the name recognition. You're speaking about the uh, recruiting base in the area where they can get their players from i mean they can go right down the street and get about you know 18 four or five star recruits that can that can uh make lsu a a delete football program they don't have to go to california or to arizona or to new york they can go ahead and just go in their backyard and pick the recruits pick the five-star recruits off the recruiting tree and have them become an elite program so lsu is not going to be going anywhere those are the type of schools that Auburn is going to be going up against in terms of the next coach who wants to compete for national championships on a consistent basis. They're going to have to go up against the Texases and the Oklahomas in the Florida State. They're going to have to go into Florida and win some battles. They're going to have to go to uh, Georgia and fight off Kirby Smart and that machine that he has where they're churning out top three, four recruiting classes year after year after year. It's a tough job. It's a tough gig. $7 million a year? In Auburn, Alabama, yeah, that sounds about right in terms of uh, a coach with the expectations that the 
Auburn fan base has to uh, become a coach there. That's about sounds about right. So, yeah, man, you have a lot of uh, areas where you can recruit, but it's very competitive, and you're in a region of the country where college football is taking is taken very, very seriously. So, there you go. So, you take a look at the candidates for the job. I'm taking a look at these candidates as I'm doing my podcast. It's called Wendell's World of Sports with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, podcasting it. What are these jobs here? Hugh Freeze, taking a look at the candidates for the job. Hugh Freeze, Kevin Steele, Mario Cristobal over at Oregon. <laughs> Brent Venables, he's the defense coordinator over at Clemson. Billy Napier, head coach over at Louisiana at Lafayette. Man, you, if you're open, you want you want that guy. You want the you want your coach to be from Louisiana at Lafayette. Steve Carcesian, coached at uh, Washington. Didn't he coach at USC? Wasn't the offensive coordinator at USC, Lane Kiffin? He's been around the block. So those candidates look about right. Hugh Freeze should be the leading candidate. I mean, when he was at Ole Miss for five years, he was 39 and 25. Beat Alabama twice during that span. Won 10 games in 2015 and then played in the Sugar Bowl. But as I mentioned before, when he had that number one recruiting class, Robert Kendiche, oh, I forgot the guy's the last name, went on to play for the Arizona Cardinals for a little bit, but uh, he was like the number one recruit in an American high school at that time. And it's like they got the kid Treadwell, who was a wide receiver. It was like Mississippi pulled off this Alabama-type recruiting class. And it's like, wait a, wait a, wait a minute. Alabama recruiting these guys and getting these guys understood. Ohio State getting these guys understood. Georgia getting these guys understood. LSU getting these guys understood. Fucking Mississippi, really? Really? All right, something shady's going on down there. They peeled back a little bit, and yep, something shady was going on. They were cheating. They were paying the guys. So um, that basically tarnished the reputation of Hugh Freeze. I mean, he was... uh, he was cheating pretty good. He was cheating at a high level. Let's put it that way in terms of, you know, giving players money and all those type of things. Laramie Tunzel was up there talking about one of the college coaches, one of the assistant coaches for old Miss Payton. And it was basically a program that had been, that had run out of, you know, that was running out of control. And, and, the, and the worst part is, I think the situation was they beat Alabama with that squad. And of course, it's like, well, you know, fuck that. This is some bullshit. We're definitely going to have to, uh, see what's going on down there because we don't need to have Mississippi be one of our be one of our games that we're going to have to uh, be worried about. I mean, we have to be worried about LSU and others. We're not going to be worried about Mississippi, so we're going to do what we can to make sure that shit doesn't happen because, yeah, we might be doing the same thing that Hugh Freeze is doing, but we're Alabama. Same thing with LSU. We might be doing the same thing as far as bending, breaking the NCAA rules that Hugh Freeze and Mississippi is doing, but we're fucking Alabama. But we're LSU. We ain't no goddamn Mississippi. So, yeah, we're going to put a stop to that pronto. So, that was the deal. And also, you freeze didn't win enough. I mean, it's like, yeah, you have this great recruiting class. You cheated to get them. And it's like, that's the best you can do is win 10 games? You got all that talent? No, 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 no. You're supposed to be, uh-uh. You're supposed to be doing a little bit better than that, son. So, because of that, they opened up an investigation Saw some deals in terms of, you know, running a program that was out of control. That was the end of Hugh Freeze. Then you also have to think back 
to freeze himself using a self using a university cell phone issued cell phone to call numbers linked to exotic services dating back to at least 1914. So the uh, review of Freeze's phone records revealed that he dialed at least 12 numbers that are associated with online advertisements for female escorts. The calls took place over a 33-month period beginning in April of 2014 and usually lasted two minutes or less. How much can you get roused up and excited and rip-roaring and get your loins going by some female talking to you for two minutes talking about what she wants to do to you sexually? Only two minutes? Takes me at least 10 minutes, baby. That's what I'm talking about. I'm joking, Jesus. But uh, so, yeah, so all of that shit that you freeze, that went down with you freeze, said, uh, caused him to say bye bye. But, uh, you know, he's done good work at Liberty and uh, he wins. And Auburn, the school that also employs Bruce Pearl, who's had his uh, difficulties, shall I say, with the NCAA in terms of what's right and what what's wrong with the rules. As long as you win, this is the SEC. Will Wade, who is like, has the ability down there to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it type of uh, a type of a deal as much as he's cheating. He was, he was caught red-handed on a phone call cheating. I mean, he was caught actually cheating and this guy still had the job. This guy was cheating in the administration and the fan base backed him up. And this is the basketball coach, not even the football coach. He's allowed to cheat like that, and as long as you're winning, everything is A-OK. So Auburn is cut from that cloth. Now, I guess after you get your asses kicked by Alabama, I'm quite sure outside of someone from ISIS, you could go ahead, as long as you can beat Nick Saban, it's good enough for me. And even if it's ISIS, I guess somehow, some way, you know, if he beats Alabama, we can spin it to where he beat Nick Saban. So, you know, Auburn, there you go. But, uh, yeah. It's a um, interesting time to be a fan of the Auburn football team. Let's uh, let's see what direction it goes. World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste, my brothers and sisters. Wassalamu alaikum, my brothers and sisters. Konnichiwa, my brothers and sisters. Bonjour, bonsoir. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me llamo a Wendell Wallace. Shalom, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. Special dedication for those listening in Vancouver. Special dedication listening to those in New York. Special dedication listening to those in Hong Kong. Special dedication listening in Perth, Australia. Special dedication listening to those in Denia. Special dedication listening to those in Cape Town. Special dedication 
For those listening all over the world to this podcast, yours truly says thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's just growing, baby. It's just growing. The first 60 like episodes I did, my man Eric G in Oklahoma City, who I've interviewed, one of the very few interviews I've given, I've done on this program, good friend of, good friend of mine, he told me, man, the first 60 episodes, just do them, just do them. Don't worry about publishing or don't worry about, you know, how many people are listening and all that kind of nonsense. Just do it. Just get used to the podcast feel. Now I feel to do a podcast because I'm, I'm a sports talk radio guy. That's my background. That's all I've done. So, you know, I have to make that transition. Take some of what I did, some of the fundamentals of sports talk radio on radio. When I used to work at the Deuce and out here in Vegas and sit and stuff and incorporate it into the format, which is podcasting, which I've listened to a lot of podcasts before I started, but I never really did one myself, really never thought about it until I got really sick and tired of the fucking radio business, the broadcasting business, the sports talk business, and wanted to uh, go into business for myself, give this shit a try. Been out on the beach long enough in terms of not getting a radio gig. I was tired of program directors telling me shit and telling me how I should do my program and their talent does the same thing I'm doing and it's like well wait a minute how in the world are you not hiring me because of a b and c and the guy that you're employing right now is doing the same type of shit same type of fundamentals lack of fundamentals whatever you want to say a b and a b and c how is he still have 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 a gig and I can't get a gig oh well we're working on that yeah you know I understand what you're saying yeah we're aware of that and this that and the other so I got tired of hearing that bullshit and I got tired of trying to play other people's game. And I got tired tired of doing a show just for a program director who don't know shit about what the fuck he's doing. Program directors in Sports Talk Radio are some of the worst motherfuckers in the world in terms of this business is concerned. One of the worst things about Sports Talk Radio, broadcasting business, Sports Talk Radio, are program directors. So I got tired of trying to appease and do a show for program directors. I'm going to do a show for the people. So the best way for me to do a show for the people doing it the way that I want to do it, with my personality 100% supercharged, is to go ahead and do podcasting, which is slowly but surely it's going to become the main form of communication in terms of, of the listening base and all of those things moving forward. So I want to be right there as it continues to progress. So that's the reason why I got into doing this podcasting deal. And I absolutely love it. I absolutely love the fact that I can curse and do whatever I want to do. I love the fact that I can uh, be me. And I love the fact that I don't have anybody talking about, oh, you know, in the uh, first segment there at the four-minute mark, you should have, uh, you know, gone in at 3.58 with that point instead of four minutes. Uh, you know, really just threw everything off. So I'm, I'm glad that I don't have to answer to a program director who don't know shit about what I do, how I do it, and how successful I am, will be, and was doing it. So there you go. Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us watching the game here in my humble abode as I'm recording this podcast on a Wednesday afternoon watching the LA Lakers play the Phoenix Suns in an exhibition game with nobody at the stadium in Phoenix or at the arena in Phoenix. But Chris Paul, Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and LeBron and AD have gotten extended minutes. But when it comes to preseason basketball, just like preseason football, not really interested, especially when we're speaking about this season for the NBA. 72 games, the short uh, offseason, quick turnaround. You know, no, nothing's going to be decided in 
December or January. I don't know when exactly we're going to be able to get a good feel of who's who and who's doing what, who's good, who's not good. Now, yeah, teams like the Lakers, teams like the Clippers, teams like the Bucks. Those are all going. All those teams are going to be good. But when you're speaking about some other uh, teams who are going to be vying for playoff contention in the championship, players joining new teams, how does that work moving forward, all those type of things. I don't know exactly when that's going to be. We're going to be able to get a real clear understanding of what those teams are about, especially when we're speaking about a pandemic where, man, we don't know what's going to be happening, what's going to be, you know, what's what's going to be the, the motion that's going to be taken when, if, probably when, uh, a player gets COVID. It's not going to be like it was last March when Rudy Gobert got the virus or tested positive for the virus and shut the whole league down. The league is going to put it similar to uh, what's happening in football and pros in the college. Same thing with um, basketball. They're just going to put their head down and see what they can do to get to an NBA championship uh, series. If that means playing 72 games, if that means playing 55 games, if that means playing 62 games. Now, they're not going to suspend the season and this started in a bubble. I don't think that's going to be a situation because if the Summer Olympics are going to be happening, I believe, in August in Tokyo, I'm going to believe that FIBA is going to want to have the NBA basketball players available to play for their certain countries. So I don't know how that would work in terms of there's a pandemic. We don't know what's going to be happening in terms of getting a vaccine. We don't know what the situation with the virus is going to be when we're speaking about the spring and first part of summer months. So all of those things are going to be are going to be uh, talked about, are going to be situations and issues dealing with the NBA. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So the regular season for the league, the association, is less than two weeks away. One of the major storylines of the season, which is now a non-story, the second best, third best, top five player in the league, Giannis Adenikupo, signs the Supermax deal to stay with Milwaukee. It's going to be for the full five-year, $228 million Supermax, including an opt-out after the fourth year. Now, what Giannis posted on Twitter on Tuesday, he said, quote, this is my home, this is my city. I'm blessed to be able to be a part of the Milwaukee Bucks for the next five years. Let's make these years count. The show goes on. Let's get it. So, and then the Kupo's been with Milwaukee for... Seven years. I think he's going to be turning 26. So this is a contract. If he fulfills the, ex- the extended five years, it's going to bring him to the age of 31, 32, when everything is all said and done with this particular Supermax contract. So again, Giannis has been with Milwaukee seven years. They haven't reached the NBA Finals since 1974 with some guy named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and the big O Oscar Robertson. So moving forward for Milwaukee, with the Bucks, you're speaking about the Packers being in Green Bay. That state rules. That team rules the entire state of Wisconsin. But if you're speaking about the Milwaukee Bucks and you're speaking about the Milwaukee Brewers, I just I, I'm going to go on the assumption that it's based on how well that they're doing type of deal in terms of who has the bigger fan base, who has the more passionate fan base, who garners the more, who garners the most attention between those two teams. Well, Milwaukee has put themselves squarely in the position after the Packers to be the most important thing sportsly, uh, uh, sports team-wise in the state of Wisconsin, including Marquette. 
Um, they haven't won again a title since well, they have been in the finals since 1974. They won a title in the 1970-71 season. They won 66 and 16. That was the year uh, that they beat the them Baltimore Bullets. Washington was uh, not their destination as far as the Bullets were concerned. They played the Baltimore, so they swept them. That Baltimore had West Unsell and Earl the Pearl Monroe, but that was a really good team from Milwaukee. That stretch uh, played great basketball, had a good rivalry with the Los Angeles Lakers of Jerry West and uh, Wilt Chamberlain. Made it to the finals in 1974 with Kareem Oscar on his last legs of being a really effective basketball, NBA basketball player. Lost in six games to the Boston Celtics. And then the year after that, Kareem was like, you know what, man? I don't like Wisconsin. It's too cold. Dealing with these Muslims is starting to get my life a little bit hectic. I want to go back to either New York or L.A. So he pulled himself an Anthony Davis. He did himself a James Harden. He did himself uh, what many people are bemoaning and whining and crying about and how this is what is so wrong with sports because you have these guys now wanting to be traded and whining and crying about that. Well, Kareem was doing that back in 1975 where he said, yeah, Milwaukee, I know I'm under contract, but uh, this shit ain't working. So, uh, you know, time for me to go. So he was traded to the Lakers in 1975 for about 55 cents on the dollar. And ever since then, Milwaukee has not sniffed uh, the opportunity to play in the NBA championship. They had some good, they had some good eras of Milwaukee basketball. If you're thinking about 1979 and 1986, I mean, they finished first in the Central Division, second in the Eastern Conference, seven straight years. They reached the conference finals three years. They just so happened to be playing in the same conference as Larry Byrne and Kevin McHale and Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge and Robert Parrish and being coached by Casey Jones. It just so happened the year 1982-83, one of the best teams to play in the last 25 years, the Philadelphia 76ers with Fo-Fo-Fo, Moses Malone, and the white boy who played like a black guy, Bobby Jones and Julia Serving and Andrew Tony and Maurice Cheeks and Clement Lemon Johnson and those guys. I mean, that was one of the best teams of the – Last, you know, of that era, um, they dusted off Milwaukee um, during that season. In fact, I think that was the, when Moses said fo fo fo. I think Milwaukee that year was the only team during the playoffs that actually won a game against the Philadelphia 76ers. That year they went 12-1 and in the playoffs. So, I mean, during that time period, the Bucks had a really good team. I mean, they were elite. You had players like Sidney Moncrief and Marcus Johnson and Bob Lanier and then Terry Cummings and Jack Sigma and Ricky Pierce. Ricky Pierce was my favorite because that guy could shoot. He was. They were coached by Don Nelson. They swept the Boston Celtics in the 1983 playoffs. I mean, they were they were a strong team. It just so happens they ran into the team of the 80s in the Eastern Conference, Larry Bird and the Boston Celtics. Swept the uh, and then from 2001 to 2014, they made the playoffs. Five seasons, lost in the first round each time. They finished fourth or fifth in the division eight times. They finished 500 or under 10 seasons. So that time period was where I think most people are talking about where it was like, well, you know, this is terrible and this is horrible and this is ridiculous. And Milwaukee was a bad franchise during that time, despite having such players as Brandon Jennings and Andrew Bogut and Glenn Robinson and Mo Mo Williams, Bobby Simmons, Michael Red, I mean, the number of coaches that they went through during that time period. Just think about these coaches. You had George Carl, Scott Skiles, Terry Stotts. Yep, Portland's Terry Stotts. Terry Porter, 
Larry Kristoviak, who's now coaching over in Utah. I mean, the University of Utah. So during those years, I mean, you had Ray Allen, you had Sam Cassell, and you had Glenn Robinson for just a little bit of uh, thumbs up positivity. But for the most part, during that time period, starting off in the 21st century to the time that they drafted Giannis, there were lean times in Milwaukee. I remember the situation where Milwaukee almost had the opportunity to get themselves Steph Curry. And the Golden State at the time, Curry had been coming off a couple of ankle injuries. And this was before Stephen Curry became Steph Curry, the greatest shooter in basketball history, transcending the, the game of basketball with his shooting, his range, and those type of things. So during that time, before that Steph Curry emerged, he was in the backcourt with Monte Ellis, a guy who didn't go to college. He went straight from uh, somewhere in Mississippi to the NBA, second-round draft pick, you know, made a good career. I think he made an all-star game, explosive guy, about 6'5", kind of like a Zach Levine type of player with a little bit less athleticism. And those two were in the backcourt. Well, the only problem was none of those two could play the defense. And you had Stephen Curry, who I just mentioned before, kept twisting his ankle and kept having injury uh, issues with his ankle. So the Warriors were looking to break that squad up because they needed a big man. They needed a rim protector. They needed somebody to go ahead and play defense. I think this was before Mark Jackson came to coach the Warriors. So they went to Milwaukee, and they were like, hey, you want you mind? Or let's talk about the possibility of trading for Andrew Bogut, and you get your choice of Monte Ellis or Steph Curry. And Milwaukee chose tails instead of heads and said, well, because of Steph Curry's injury history and the fact that he signed a relatively at the time, risky contract. Now, when he blew up, it was one of the best contracts in NBA history, which allowed the Warriors to uh, become the dynasty that they were and to have themselves the opportunity to get themselves Kevin Durant. But at the time that Steph Curry signed that contract, which I think was like 12, 13,000, 12, 13 million at the time, it was considered risky because of his injury history with his ankles. So because of all that, the Milwaukee Bucks were like, nah, that's okay. We'll go ahead and get Monte Ellis and uh, you guys can keep Steph Curry. How did that trade work out? Whoops! So, yeah, there were some lean times in Milwaukee. There were bad decisions in Milwaukee. I remember them; those guys drafting Joe Alexander out of West Virginia. I believe with the number five or number seven pick. 6'8", 240-pound white boy who could uh, put the ball on the floor and shoot and do all those type of things. He never panned out. Brandon, Brandon Jennings had a good month to start his NBA career. I think he scored 50. His first uh, month in the NBA, and eventually he fizzled out. So, yeah, there were some lean times before Giannis came along and uh, became the player that he was. And you're talking about the ultimate underdog. You're talking about the golden ticket that no one saw coming. Nobody. Because I remember in that draft, that was the draft that Otto Porter was drafted number three by the Wizards. I don't remember even who, who were the number two picks, the number one and number two picks. I don't even remember. But I, I just remember how everybody was bemoaning the fact that there really wasn't any type of talent in that in that draft. So here's Giannis, who's going to turn out to be possibly a generational talent, sitting there in Greece. The Milwaukee Bucks pick him up. Everybody is saying, who? What? How the fuck do you even pronounce his name? Where is he from? Those are his highlights. Which one is him? The video is ridiculous. What type of what type of recording is this? It looked like he's playing a bunch of uh, eighth graders at the YMC. 
He's playing in some league in Greece, and he looks to be like 6'8", a buck 25. And this is the guy that you make your first round draft pick? This guy? Well, <laughs> it turns out to be a pretty good deal. So, looks like Milwaukee, congratulations. It's good for the league. It's good for everybody. It's good for the um, Milwaukee Bucks. It's just great. You know? He, and I think one of the great things, or one of the interesting things to come out of it was everybody speaking about, you know, Giannis... Why would he stay with the Bucks? It's a small town market. And, you know, why would he want to eventually go ahead and play for the Lakers? And then maybe he will. But, you know, during the prime or during his first opportunity to get himself a fat super max contract or get a max contract, why wouldn't he uh, take his talents to South Beach or to uh, Tinseltown or to the Windy City or to the nation's capital? You got that right. Or to uh, Chocolate City, which again is the nation's capital, or to uh, Gotham, which is New York. Why wouldn't the hell? Why in the hell would he want to stay in Milwaukee when he and when him and, and um, Luca and possibly Zion are going to be the faces of the league? You know, moving forward, why in the fuck would he want to stay in Milwaukee and not take advantage of all the goodies and all the opportunities that come with playing in a major? major market well first first of all Giannis has always been more in, uh, cut from the same cloth as say a Kobe Bryant or a Dirk Nowitzki a Reggie Miller a Tim Duncan a Damian Lillard type which says no man I want to stay with my I want to stay with one team my entire career I don't I don't want to do a LeBron I don't want to do a KD I don't want to do a Shaq the way that they went from franchise to franchise to franchise and for me personally I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong I don't think there's one one right way and one wrong way. Whatever uh, is best for you, you do what's best for you. So in this situation, I'm not saying that to say that, yeah, Giannis is the better human being or a better basketball player or a more, more loyal of a teammate because of uh, his opportunity, because of his decision to uh, stay in Milwaukee instead of doing the LeBron route. But, uh, you know, so, so, so in that essence, Giannis, it didn't surprise me when he was talking about, you know, I'm going to be staying in Milwaukee. That didn't shock me. Or when I heard the news that he signed the Supermax with the Bucks, it didn't shock me or throw me for a loop. We're talking about a guy who was born in Greece. We're talking about a guy who was born in the slums in Greece and had to face racism and discrimination that me, you, and a lot of these guys who are playing in the NBA right now of African-American descent didn't have to go through. And, oh, yeah, we go through racism and being black in America's you know, it can be a can be a chore and a half instead of some days just being just a chore. But you know, the bullshit that Adenikupo had to go through, being a black man in Greece, it's a lot different than being a black man in Akron. It's a lot different than being a black man in PG County. It's a lot different than being a black man growing up in Oakland, California. It's a lot different than growing up in uh, Los Angeles in some uh, in some neighborhoods if you're black. At least when you grow up in those neighborhoods, yeah, it might be poor. Yeah, it might be having the struggles, but at least you're looking at folks who look like you. I mean, at least, at least you kind of understand your identity in terms of, yeah, there's a whole bunch of black folks uh, from my neighborhood, and we get the culture, and we're inundated, and all that kind of stuff. So I'm not alone. I'm not lonely. I'm not looking around saying, where did the people who look like me? In Greece, Giannis didn't have that. Giannis wasn't growing up in a in in a, in a, in a southeast DC type of situation. He wasn't growing up in a, uh, he wasn't grow up in an Atlanta Georgia type of situation where he looked around and saw 
you know, a whole bunch of black folks, um, you know, walking around, you know, in the same situation, black folks in Greece. That wasn't Giannis's upbringing. I mean, he had to stick strong. He had to deal with a whole lot of perversity and a whole lot of racism. He only had his brothers and his family members, immediate family members to do that with. So this kid, this young man now is cut from an entirely different cloth. He didn't have the opportunity to go play AAU basketball when he was 13 years old and form relationships with people who would be in the NBA also who, you know, I've been friends with this player or I've been friends with this superstar since, you know, the AAU tournaments when we were 13. Giannis didn't have that. When these guys in the summer, Harden and the Westbrooks and the LeBrons and the KDs and the Kawhis and all of these NBA guys, when they go to uh, UCLA and play, when they go over to uh, Rucker Park and play, when they go to uh, the Fondue down in Houston and play, when these guys go to Miami and play, when these guys go to their different situations as far as working out and gyms and everything like that, these guys are all working out together. They get to know each other. They get to talk to each other. They get to break bread with each other when they train and all that type of stuff. And those and that forms those bonds and that forms those friendships. And that's form those forms those, you know, situations where they might call during the season and say, Hey man, what's up? What's your situation like, man? You know what? I'd love to be playing with you and this, that, and the other. And we had a good time this summer and we worked well when we were working out together. And if you come here, we can do this and we can do that. I mean, Americans, the basketball players, the stars, they have formulated those type of friendships. When the season's over for Giannis, he goes back to Greece. He doesn't live in LA. He, he doesn't make his off-season home in Florida or LA or Atlanta or New York or anything like that. He's going back over to Greece. So he's not working out with any other NBA superstars. He's not FaceTiming them. He's not texting them in terms of, it's not doing that. So yeah, I can understand where when everything is all said and done, Giannis takes a different route, takes an alternative route than some of these American-born basketball players and says, what's the matter with, what's wrong with them, Milwaukee? Milwaukee's cool. I mean, you know, it's my home. I went from the streets, I went from struggling in Greece to um, now living in Milwaukee. And because of his stature and because of the money that he makes, some, some of the bullshit that comes with being a black man in this country some he will have to deal with because of his stature and because of his uh, finances. So I don't, it doesn't, doesn't uh, surprise me that Giannis is saying, no, I'm good. I'm cool. Milwaukee for another five years. It's fine. So taking a look at what Milwaukee is for this upcoming season. Now you're going to be looking at a starting lineup of Drew Holiday and Dante DiVincenzo Chris Middleton, Giannis, and Brooke Lopez. Then off the bench, you've got Bobby Portis, free agent pickup. DJ Augustine, free agent pickup. Marvin Williams. Wow, I thought he retired. Ersan Ilyasova. Didn't get too much time last season, but a good locker room guy. Pat Connington, a good athlete, can shoot a little bit. Kyle Korver was brought in to be a shooter last season, but struggled, inconsistent. Age might be starting to get up to him. So if you take a look at that Milwaukee roster, is that a team that's good enough to win the NBA championships when you consider Brooklyn, Boston, Toronto, Miami, Philadelphia, Indiana? That good did that team? Is that team good enough to win a championship in your opinion? Yes? No? Maybe so? What's up? I think they're elite. Um I would like to see Giannis come in a little bit more. 
everybody's talking about Giannis three-point shooter, three-point shooter. I, I don't need Giannis to be throwing up four or five three-point shots a game. I don't need Giannis to try to become 38% three-point shooter. I want Giannis to become proficient from 18, 19 feet. I mean, if he can consistently at like a 46, 47% clip shoot the 17 to 18 footer, that man's going to average 30 a game. Because even when you lay off of him, he's so long, he's so lanky, he's so athletic, he's so, he's so strong, he's so nimble, he's going to get his way to the cup anyway. And he's either going to get fouled or he's going to uh, dunk on you with those little up and unders, with those Euro steps. That's what, that's what he's going to do. So if he can kind of take some of the pounding that he takes when he goes to the room, when he goes to the hoop, if he can, you know, take six or seven anywhere between 16 and 19 foot jump shots and make them in terms of having the ability to have the other player, the defender, know that this guy can make this shot, all of a sudden now that pump fake is going to become so much more proficient. That jab step is going to become so much more proficient. And he's going to be able to get six to eight easy points by not, you know, to, you know, going going to the uh, hoop, you know, full speed ahead and uh, trying to go through that brick wall. Especially when the playoff comes, when you're going to be facing teams that are going to be crowding the lane and make it harder for you to go ahead and slice and dice and you're step your way to the uh, basket. So, from Giannis's standpoint, everybody talked about what the, what are the Bucks going to do for Giannis? What is Giannis going to do for the Bucks? He he doesn't. He's the MVP. This is not a slight. I don't want to make this as a slight. But just offensively, he doesn't have that. Offensively, he doesn't have that repertoire of offensive move yet to be that franchise guy in the playoffs. And I think that jump shot is the only thing that's holding him back. Now, if you add that jump shot, guess what? Chris Middleton gets better looks to score. Now, Chris Middleton also has to pick up his game. He's been inconsistent. During his time in the playoffs. Brooke Lopez, who's a three-point shooter. He's going to get better looks. And he's pretty proficient around the basket also. He's not a complete stiff down there. So he's going to be able to uh, do some more damage because of that. Jeruel Holiday is going to bring defense. Now here comes a guy who's going to be able to go ahead and guard the Jimmy Butlers. To be able to go ahead and guard the um, uh, Kyle Lowry's and the Jason Tatum's and the Kyrie Irving's of the world to do a pretty good job. No one's going to be able to stop those guys. But it's going to mean, A, Giannis is not going to have to worry about that. And B, those guys are going to have a true defender who can play some really good defense on those guys and make those guys work, which is uh, something that they didn't have last season. So in that sense, I think that uh, Milwaukee's better. And if you take a look at the bench, look, Bobby Portis, the best thing he's known about is punching out Nika Mirtic who's now over, overseas playing, but uh, he's a serviceable player. DJ Augustine, good regular season guy, too short, too um, uh, deficient in the defense to really get some real minutes once the playoff starts. Marvin Williams, you know, Ersan Ilyasova really hadn't gotten an opportunity yet. Pat Connington, Kyle Korver really didn't step up and do anything last season in the bubble. This is going to be all on Mike Bootenholzer because, again, the Boston Celtics, look, they have the nucleus back. They have the nucleus back of Tatum Brown, Marcus Smart, Kemba Walker. They picked up Tristan Thompson. Gordon Hayward left via free agents. That's taken 17 points away. But look, Boston, no way could they have signed Hayward 
the same that uh, Charlotte paid him. I mean, Boston was going to be giving Gordon Hayward a $120 million contract. So, case hurrah, hurrah. The point is, is that they didn't get anybody to um, make up for those minutes. Tristan Thompson, his main deal is going to be being able to uh, guard. Not too much of a rim protector. Thompson was never a rim protector. Small ball, five, I guess. Not really good finishing around the basket, but... One thing he is, is that he's a tremendous pick-and-roll defender because the mismatch is not going to be as big when you do that pick-and-roll and Tristan is going to be out on that guard or on that scoring scoring wing player. He's going to be doing a much better job. And I think because of his size, he's going to make it a little bit harder, more difficult for players like Bam Adebayo to go ahead and do their thing. As much as we loved in that bubble in the Eastern Conference Finals between Miami and Boston to talk about the great job that Tyler Hero had, uh, did and Jimmy Butler and those guys, which they were. They were tremendous. Duncan Robinson shooting well a couple of games. The MVP of that series was Bam Adebayo because they had nobody, I mean nobody, to be able to slow that man down. I mean, God bless you, Daniel Tice. I think now coming back that he could be a good rotation player. But if you're speaking about crunch time minutes, and they needed somebody to make a stop. Daniel Tice was not the one to do it. And definitely last season, Enos Cantor was not the one to do that. So Kristen Thompson, the free agent acquisition, now joining the Celtics. He's going to be that guy. Are they going to be true contenders for the Milwaukee Bucks? I mean, Jason Tatum signed that max deal. So he's good to go for a little bit to go ahead with the deal that uh, Jason Brown signed last season. So those two guys are going to continue uh, their ascension to reaching their potential. Gordon, uh, Jason Tatum type of guy. But this season, I think he's grown. I think he's now 6'9 or 6'10 or something like that. So I'm thinking Hayward. Damn it, why do I keep saying Hayward? I'm thinking Tatum could take that leap to be that guy who should be making one of the all-NBA teams possibly. Third team, third team, I think. But if not, just right outside it. Uh, Jalen Brown continuing to be Robin to Tatum's Batman. They're going to have to uh, see what they can do about uh, holding ground with, with uh, without Kimba Walker, who's experiencing some knee difficulties, so he's not going to be back. Marcus Smart, for every, to everyone's surprise, without their shooting three, sometimes he got a little three happy. Sometimes he was a little bit too uh, Kobe Bryant in his mindset about shooting shots. But, uh, you know, I think Marcus Smart, Marcus Smart not only being that guy who can, of course, defend, does the little things, glue guy and everything. I think also he provides the toughness that Tatum and Walker don't have and and really shouldn't really need anyway. Their jobs are to, uh, especially Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum's the franchise guy. Franchise guys aren't enforcers or aren't, you know, the toughest guys on the team. That's for... People like Marcus Smart. That's for like the Clippers. The best player on the Clippers is Kawhi Leonard. The toughest guy, the meanest guy, is Patrick Beverly. So, you know, to to fulfill that role. So, very rarely do you ask your superstar player to also be your toughest, your scrappiest, and and that type of deal. So, um, with the Boston Celtics, that's the situation with them. I'm expecting them to come maybe, what, second, third place, somewhere around there. Depends upon the status of Kimba Walker and how he returns after dealing with the knee issue. Exactly when is he going to come back? No one knows. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Philadelphia 76ers. They got a new coach in Doc Rivers. 
a new GM and Daryl Morey. Better pieces surrounding Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Thank you very much, El- much Elton Brand. You can step to the side now and learn from Daryl. Um, great job in getting, getting rid of Al Horford. Finally got some shooters around two non-shooting guys in Embiid and Simmons, Danny Green, Seth Curry. Now, I don't, I don't know. Danny Green is supposed to provide outside shooting. But if you take a look, especially in the playoffs, not just with the Lakers last season in the bubble, but also before that with um, Toronto, his outside shot, his three-point shot, shot was nowhere in terms of being efficient. So with Danny Green being a year older, I wonder what type of consistency he's going to provide in a role that he's going to be responsible for, which is three-point shooting. Seth Curry the brother of Steph Curry, I think, is one of the better three-point shooters in the league, and he's on a pretty nice contract for the next four years. So I think he'll help. But you know, Danny Green, they're going to need they're going to need him to be a little bit more consistent from the three-point line. I, I didn't even mention the fact that, in terms of defense is concerned, the Danny Green that we saw in San Antonio and such, I think that defender is long gone. But I think more to the point is his three-point shooter, of course. Surrounding the Philadelphia 76ers is the deal with James Harden. Harden was one of those who mentioned Philadelphia, one of the teams that he would like to be traded to. There was speculation if a trade like that was going to go down, that Ben Simmons would be uh, included or have to be included in a draft, in a, in a trade for James Harden. Don't know how that's going to go. Here's the thing that I'm interested in, though. Look, Doc Rivers, Black America's head coach, Doc Rivers, good coach, elite, would I say elite? I think if he's not elite, he's right there. But, look, the last couple of, like, because he's going to be dealing with Simmons and Embiid. And I'm thinking about the last two opportunities he had to work with superstars. Really didn't turn out that well. One of the things where, you know, Philly fans are, are, are raving about getting Doc Rivers, you know, championship coach, and he's a good coach, and he is a good coach. He's a good in-game coach, uh, good X's and O's guys. He's loudly applauded for his, uh, the plays that he draws up after timeout. So, you know, the, the basic fundamentals of coaching and those type of things. I mean, Doc Rivers is an upgrade over Brett Brown, no doubt about it. And the fact that he won a championship, I think, gives him more credibility and more respect within that locker room, dealing with players like Embiid and Ben Simmons. But I'm thinking about the way that Rivers with the Clippers, the way that those teams underachieved when they had the star system, first with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, and then last season's, I guess you could say, season of somewhat dysfunction between Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Now, with each scenario, it's all different. I think when you're dealing with Simmons and Embiid, I think it's a little bit closer to Blake and Chris Paul in terms of, you know, whose team it is and who's going to be the leader and personalities not matching. Chris Paul is a notorious chewing up your ass and this, that, and the other. And Blake Griffin was like, man, get the fuck out of here. And Kawhi and Paul, I think they were more of those two against some of the other veterans on the, or some of the other Clipper veterans who have been there for a while. 
in terms of this is the way we do things, this is our culture, and now here comes Paul George and Kawhi Leonard talking about, no, that culture's now gone. Now you're going to be going by my schedule. So if I'm Kawhi and I'm in San Diego chilling with the family and I don't feel like coming to practice, guess what? We ain't coming to practice. If I want to spend a little bit more time in this city, guess what? We're going to be spending a little bit more time in this city. If I don't feel like playing tonight, uh, I'm not playing tonight. Kawhi, who who has won a couple of championships, one of the best players in the league, begrudgingly, he can get away with some shit like that. Paul George couldn't. Paul George thought that he had the same type of uh, rules set for him as it did for Kawhi, and the players would be like, yeah, that's fine. But no, Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell was like, man, fuck this shit. I mean, we might not like it, but we can tolerate Kawhi getting that shit. I mean, he's got some chips. What have you done, Playoff P? How many championships have you won, Playoff P? And you're up here trying to decide this, that, and the other, and you're up there trying to tell us how things are going on? Really? So Rivers didn't really handle that situation well, and we saw... And there were some other things that were involved. The Williams was injured. Patrick Beverly was injured. Montrez Harold was not only injured, but he was dealing with the death of the family, his grandmother. So when he got back to the bubble, things weren't right. I think the attitude, I think just the way the culture was, was wrong. So how is now Rivers, how is Black America's head coach Doc Rivers going to deal with the relationship between Simmons and and Embiid. There hasn't been any bickering. There hasn't been any fighting. There hasn't been any, this is my team. No, this is my team. It ain't Kobe and Shaq or it ain't Kevin uh, Garnett and Stephon Marbury. There's nothing in terms of that. But I just think as far as the personalities, they don't really match. They don't really gel. Now, in the big picture, what exactly does that mean? As long as they play well on the basketball court, who gives a fuck what they do in their off time? Those guys don't want to hang around each other in their off time, then fine. I don't give a fuck. As long as you guys are cohesive and together once the ball is up and we start playing games. Maybe that's the emphasis that Doc is going to have to uh, give to those guys. But, you know, this is going to be the third time. This is going to be really the fourth time that Rivers is going to be working with two superstars I guess you can say I don't know if any of those guys are superstars but potential superstars Garnett Ray Allen Paul Pierce work wonders Blake Griffin Chris Paul not so much Kawhi Kawhi, Paul George the the Clipper team not so much let's see what he does now with Simmons and Bede and the rest of the Philadelphia 76ers to get that team to mesh and gel Wendell's World in Sports I'm your host Wendell Wallace so glad that you could be with us the Brooklyn Nets Potentially have two of the top 10 players in the league. If you're speaking about KD and Kyrie, two of the top four players in the Eastern Conference. Again, if you're speaking about KD and Kyrie, who the fuck are they going to guard? <laughs> you have a starting lineup somewhere around Kyrie, KD, Karis LeVert, Joe Harris, DeAndre Jordan. DeAndre Jordan, not nearly the rebounding, defensive, shot-blocking fiend that he was when he played with uh, the Clippers back in the day. He hasn't played defense, I think, in a couple of years. There's, of course, the situation where he really, if it, if it wasn't for the fact of his relationship with Kyrie and, and Durant, that Jared Allen is the more plausible starter at the center position than DeAndre Jordan. So, you know, how in the world are those guys going to guard anybody? You have KD coming off of a Achilles. You really want to see him guard the best player on the offense from the wing position? No. I mean, Kyrie has never played any defense, and he's coming off a season where he only plays 20 games because of injury. Dimwitty, 
Landry Shamit. I mean, none of those guys are known as defenders. So you're not going to be able to win a title no matter how great your firepower is, no matter how great the players are in KD and Kyrie Irving. You're not going to be winning basketball games 129-126 every night. You can't do it. Ask Don Nelson when he was coaching the Golden State Warriors back in the day. You don't win basketball games like that. You don't win basketball games when you're trying to outscore everybody. Don't work that way. So that's the only thing that I see uh, from that squad. And, of course, the question from the coaching standpoint is what type of coach is Steve Nash going to be? I mean, how much do we know of his acumen in terms of X's and O's making game adjustments? He's never been in that position before. Now, he's going to have a guy like Mike D'Antoni, which is great, but guess what? D'Antoni is a guy who's a specialist on offense, not too much on defense. So who does he have as an assistant coach or whatever to uh, focus mainly on the defense, to be that defensive coordinator? And his job is mainly going to be, it was the same position where Larry Bird, when he was, was coaching the Indiana Patriots back in the gate in the day, I think for a couple of seasons. Larry Bird wasn't out there drawing up plays. Larry Bird wasn't out there doing that nonsense. He had Dick Carter on the defense, and he had Rick Carlisle as his offensive coordinator. He was just the CEO of that situation. Is Steve Nash going to be the CEO of a situation like that with the main emphasis on making sure that Kyrie and KD are uh, A-OK? Kyrie can be a little weird. Kyrie can be a little, the earth is flat, kind of weird. Kyrie can be a little, it's been four days and he still hasn't talked to me yet type of weird. So that's Kyrie for you. We don't we don't know what we're going to be getting with Kyrie and KD has in mood swings too. I mean, is he happy? Is he not happy? What can we do to make him happy? We've tried everything we can and he's still not happy. What's going on? I mean, so it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting. And you're thinking about a guy who has missed an entire year of basketball who's going to be 32 years old. And you're talking about a guy that mentioned before in Kyrie who played only 20 games because of injury. So how quickly are those guys going to be able to come back? The fact that training camp has been sort of condensed because of the uh, pandemic and how they're moving through with that. So all of those things will be interesting to watch moving forward. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. What about now the defending Eastern Conference champions, Miami Heat? Bam out of Bayou, Tyler Hero, can they continue to build off their performances that they had in the bubble? Could Jimmy Butler continue to play as the best player on a team that could win a championship as he did last uh, season in the championship round? Basically won two of the games that the uh, Heat won in the finals against the Lakers? I don't know. I don't know. Is Miami still going to be interested in seeing what they can do to try to get James Harden? That was one of the teams that were having sincere discussions. And they were like, no, no Tyler Hero. No Tyler Hero's untouchable. No, we're not dealing with Tyler Hero. Well, maybe we can talk about Tyler Hero. So it'll be interesting. Kendrick Nunn had a good uh, rookie season. Had COVID, came back with a shell of himself once he got back to the bubble, really didn't contribute the way he did before the season ended. Is he going to be a guy that's going to uh, get better and get back to where he was before the pandemic hit? Duncan Robinson, good outside shooter, but we'll see. Of course, the Miami Heat culture, uh, we'll see. We'll see, but it's going to be an interesting Eastern Conference. But for the Milwaukee Bucks, guess what? Even though Giannis signed that contract, the clock has now started. As far as the pressure, 
in terms of keeping him five years from now. Because guess what? In three years, in a DeCoupo, if they disappoint in the playoffs, no matter whose fault it is, and the Coupo could pull an Anthony Davis and be like, hey, you know what, um, when my contract is over, I'm out of here. He could pull a James Harden and be like, uh, you know what, you guys need to trade me to the, um, you guys need to trade me to the Washington Wizards. <laughs> you know, something like that. Come on down, being a Washington Wizards fan. So the pressure is going to be on the Milwaukee Bucks to get it done to get start getting to start winning them championships, at least getting to the NBA Finals. If they don't get to the Finals this season, I don't see how head coach Mike Bootenholder comes back. That that should be the requirement for him this year. I don't I don't care. I don't care about injuries. I don't care about anything else. We have a team that's good enough to make it to the NBA Finals. If we can't, then we need to go in another direction because Bootenholder still has that label of a guy who's a good coach, but a guy who is a good regular season coach and not a good um, not a good playoff coach. He won 60 games and named Coach of the Year when he was with Atlanta, where they had Paul Millsap and Jeff Teague and Al Horford and Cal Corver. Those guys all made the All-Star team last year, that year, and they played Cleveland with LeBron and Kyrie in the Eastern Conference Finals and got their doors blown off, losing four straight. So... Bootenholder also needs to overcome that stigma that, you know, he's just basically a Jeff Bedelic or a Scott Brooks, a guy who's really good in a regular season, but can't get it done in the playoffs. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Very quickly, let me get to the James Harden saga nonsense. Uh, ESPN, Ramona Shelburne, Adrian Wojnarowski report on Monday that John Wall's arrival from Washington has changed nothing with John Harden, with uh, uh, James Harden. I thought that he was sitting up there talking about how wonderful it was. And, you know, Wall was talking about, oh, yeah, he's going to love this team. He's going to love playing with me, and he's wonderful, and he's this, that, and the other. Well, James Harden has been unmoved and uninterested in forming a partnership with Wall. And he still wants the Rockets to trade him so he can get a fresh start with a new team. Oh, well, what's going on with this nonsense, as I mentioned before, with the uh, Houston Rockets and the way that they treated James Harden? It's just the way of doing business. Look, there's very few organizations. You have the Miami Heat. Before that, you had the Utah Jazz. In between that, you had the San Antonio Spurs. Where And it also has to be that fit in terms of, look, the organization rules things here. But you also have to have that superstar who's responsible enough to kind of be able to match what the organization is looking for with their own values and characteristics. So that's why the marriage between Tim Duncan and Greg Popovich and the San Antonio Spurs works so well. But make no mistake about it, Tim Duncan ran that locker room. Tim Duncan was the man. Tim Duncan, during that time in San Antonio, when he said jump, people said how high. The only difference between James Harden and Tim Duncan was, was when... When Tim Duncan said jump, the organization said, yeah, we were going to do that anyway. And we don't need to ask how high you need us to jump because we already know how high you want us to jump. And Tim Duncan said, yeah, that's about right. (laughs) You know, Tim Duncan set the rules. You know, the music had to be this way in the locker room. You know, this is what we're doing, this, that, and the other. Everything meshed in terms of this guy is exactly what we're looking for in terms of having this responsibility because we're so in the same lock, stock, and barrel of what he wants to do. James Harden, on the other hand, it was like, well, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, Mike D'Antonio, who's not a not, who's not a confrontational guy to begin with. I'm, I'm quite sure that there are some things that bothered, you know, that, that bothers him about, you know, some of the stuff that James Harden was doing and this, that, and the other. But as I mentioned before, and as McMahon mentioned, Tim McMahon mentioned in this piece for ESPN, when you're coming back off of a uh, party bender and you throw up 45 points, eight rebounds, and 14 assists, then, uh, you know, hey, okay, <laughs> Would I, would I like him to uh, maybe be a little bit more professional? Maybe, but hey, we're winning basketball games. He's one of the best players in the NBA. He's leading the league in scoring, and uh, he's keeping me paid. I'm still getting paid the, the uh, first and 15th every month. So, you know, I'll tolerate it. As Mike Tomlin said, I'll tolerate it until I no longer need you. Well, guess what? The Houston Rockets, the old James Harden, in terms of how he ran the organization, they no longer need him for that. So whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? It's everybody's fault when you're speaking about, look, should the uh, Rockets rein him in? James Harden wasn't a guy when he got traded to Houston. James Harden wasn't a guy who was an already established superstar. This was a guy who was, the, who was one of the better six men coming off the bench. I don't even know if the Houston Rockets thought that they were going to be getting the James Harden that they have for the last eight seasons in terms of how great he was. So something should have been, the foundation in terms of what you can and what you can't get away with should have been set in stone long time before James Harden exploded and became James Harden. Because in the piece, it was mentioned many times that Harden always said, look, you know what? If I don't get my way, or if you don't do this, if you don't trade Kevin, if you don't fire Kevin McHale, if you don't uh, trade for Dwight Howard, if you don't bring in a guy like Chris Paul, if you if you keep a guy like Chris Paul, if you don't bring in Russell Westbrook, you know what? I'm not going to sign a contract extension. I'll go ahead and leave or I'll start demanding a trade. So the Rockets acquiesced and said, okay, no problem. We'll give you anything that you want. If you want your buddies to go on a charter flight with us, fine. If you want to uh, stay in a city a little bit longer, fine. After the All-Star game, game, if you don't want to come to practice, fine. Because, you know, to get ready for the second half of the season, you have to go down to Atlanta and party. You have to go to L.A. and party. You have to go to Las Vegas and party. That's what we need for uh, you to do, for you to come back and keep playing the way that you're playing fine. There had to be a little give and take. And that started early. The Rockets didn't. And I'm quite sure the Rockets sooner or later knew like something like this was going to come down the road. Like the rubber was going to hit the road sooner or later. You know, it's like that... It's like that, like like the rich guy who marries the skank who's only after his money. It's like, you know, you can buy the Corvettes. Corvettes, how about that, huh? You can buy the uh, flashy cars. You can buy buy the diamonds and the jewels. And you can go on to spending sprays. And you can do all that type of thing. But sooner or later, the credit card's going to be cut off. Sooner or later, you're going to drain me of everything I got. Or you're going to put me in a position to where, look, you can't go on spending sprays in on Rodeo Drive. You can't go to Fifth Avenue and have a ball. You can't go to the Miracle Mile and go nuts. I'm going to have to rein you in. And the bitch is going to sit there and be like, yay, 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 yay. well, that's James Harden right now. The bitch that's going, yay, 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 yay. Send me to, the, send me to my next sugar daddy. Well, you know, that's, that's the deal. That's the deal. And the guy's like, no, no, I can't send you to the next sugar daddy. The sex is too good for me to do that. I still love it when you sex me up. I want to sex you up. So... That's where the Rockets and James Harden right now. The Rockets want James Harden. The Rockets want James Harden to continue to sex them up 
And James Harden wants to continue to be shopping on Rodeo Drive and the Miracle Mile and, and in Georgetown. So that's, that's the key right there. So we'll see how it goes. So again, whose fault is it when we're speaking about James Harden, the Houston Rockets, the positions that they're in? Whose fault is it? Is it? It's everybody's. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that you could be with us. So glad that you could be with me. Wendell's World of Sports, yes. So, man, speaking about what's going on in the world of sports, college basketball, Florida star Keontae Johnson in critical but stable condition after collapsing on the court. Johnson, the SEC preseason player of the year, collapsed only a few minutes In the Saturday's game against Florida State University, after an alley-oop and a media timeout, he was stretchered off the court and immediately taken to Tallahassee Memorial. According to what his grandfather told the USA Today, he is now in a medically induced coma at a Florida hospital. Just to uh, advance the story, he is responding. Thank goodness. Thank thank you, Jesus. And the fact that uh, he even FaceTimed some of his teammates. So... I'm not a doctor. I don't know the situation. I haven't been in the uh, room to see him. I don't know anything about this nonsense in terms of the medical stuff. So I'm just going by what the doctors are saying. I'm going to go on the assumption that he is out of the worst possible place that he can be in. So, um, yeah, he's following simple commands and he's undergoing further tests. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Florida Athletic Director Scott Strickland did not give any details on how long Johnson might be at the hospital or what his diagnosis is. Like most of his teammates, though, Johnson tested positive for COVID-19 during the summer. And although the cause of Johnson's ailment was not immediately known, the coronavirus can lead to myocarditis and a viral infection of the heart muscles. I'm, I'm I'm not going there. I'm not going to go there until we figure out exactly if that's the cause in terms of him having the coronavirus linking him to what happened on the court. And innocent until proven guilty on that assessment. I don't know. I have no idea. So I'm not going to blame the NCAA. I'm not going to blame Florida. I'm not going to blame anybody in terms of how could you have known? How could you uh, you know, put him out there in dangerous way when he tested positive for the coronavirus? This is horrible and this is irresponsible. I'm not going there. I'm not going to use that argument. I'm quite sure Florida or anybody outside of Dave Bliss would be so cold-hearted enough to be like, yeah, you know what? He had the COVID-19 and, you know, putting him on the floor could risk his life, but he's the SEC player of the year and we really need to have a good season this year. So I'm just going to keep my fingers crossed and throw them out there. I'm I, As much as I'm down on humanity, as much as I'm so negative on humanity, as much as I doubt the sincerity of goodness and kindness from, from most people on this planet, I'm I'm not going to sit there and say that was the case at all. So 
I don't know. I, I have no idea. Nobody has any idea. And before I start making judgments on if Keontae Johnson even should have been out there, I'm, I'm not going to be basing it on the fact that he was tested positive for the coronavirus. There's been other players who have been tested for the coronavirus. They're out there playing. Every situation is different. We're still learning about this. And the medical folks, I'm quite sure, gave Mike White and everybody else a thumbs up for Keontae Johnson to get out there and play. What happened was unfortunate, and we and we still don't know yet. So, you know, I, um, I'm i not going to go there with that. But what, I, what, where I am going to go is what happened after Johnson was attended to and then was taken off. Officials gave the teams time to regroup, and the game continued a few minutes later. What? Florida State head coach Leonard Hamilton, who has been coaching for, it's got to be over three decades, coached in the pros, coached at, uh, coached at many different Power 5 schools. He knows better. He said the administrators twice gave the Gators the option of stopping or continuing the game at that time, at, at the time of the situation and again at halftime and said they ultimately decided to play. White let his players make the call. No, 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 no. Who in the hell is the adult here? No. No, 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 no. Out of respect for Keontae, no, we're not going to play. We're not going to play. We're not going to play. Our focus now is squarely on Keontae Johnson. Squarely. Clearly. 100%. No, we're not going to play. So, you know, Hamilton, what he said after the game about continuing to play, he said, whatever they thought was the best interest of their team, then I would accept it. My administration asked me, and I told them we would be okay with, with whatever they decided. It was my understanding that they wanted to play. No, it's not about what's in the best interest of your team. No, that's not it. That's not it. It's what's in the best interest of Keontae Johnson. What's in the best interest of those players? No, you don't take. You don't make that decision. If you're the coach of this team, you're the leader, coach. You don't put that decision in the hands of your players. It's ridiculous to have played in a game like that. You remember Lila Marymount University? You remember the first round of the uh, West Coast Conference uh, tournament back, I believe it was 1989? Hank Gathers, when he died on the court? Now, we didn't know that he died at the time that he collapsed after catching that alley-oop pass from Bo Kimball and dunking it. We didn't know as he was being wheeled off the court to the ambulance that he was, that he was dying or dead at that time. But regardless, the game was called. And yeah, there had been some history with Hank Gathers collapsing before and there was a situation of a heart condition. And so people knew that there was a possibility that this could happen because it happened before. We knew what the situation was concerning his heart. He was taking medication with, which made him sluggish, which pre prevented him from playing up to his maximum ability. So Gathers weaned himself off the medication. Whether that caused his death or not, I don't know. But there was a situation where there was precedent before of him collapsing on the court. The situation with his heart, they knew that. But we don't know anything about Keontae Johnson. We don't know. Somebody falls face first after a timeout on the floor. How traumatic is that? I saw that about once or twice. And I was like, I'm good. I don't really need to see that again. 
My eyes are starting to water and the emotions are starting to come out. I don't need to see that shit again because I'm thinking about his parents. I'm thinking about his grandfather. I'm thinking about those who love him. I don't need to see that shit. And after something like that, where we don't know if this guy is, going, is, is alive or dead, we don't know what the situation is with this guy, your teammate, your brother, that you're going to go out there and play? No, we're not going to go out there and play. Instead of continuing to play that game, why don't we run over to the hospital and show some support, even if it's a situation where because he's in a medically induced coma or whatever, let's just show some support for the family. Let's just, just show some support right there. Why does Mike White have to be the only one? I know the kids have to go back to the campus and all those type of things, but the whole team should have gone there. I, I don't understand why they played that game. It made no sense. It, it's horrible. Again, I'm not going to blame the NCAA. This wasn't an NCAA call. You know, this wasn't the NCAA call up and saying, no, fuck that, man. Y'all are playing. Fuck that shit. No, so. But it, it lends more credence to what Mike Krzyzewski said when he was like, what are we doing here? What What, 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 what is this? Where we, where, you know, where these kids can't come, go home for Christmas and see their loved ones because of this situation. Why, why are we putting basketball games ahead of situations like that? Why are we using these players as, as essential workers in a situation where they're not being compensated for it? They're putting their lives on the line. I mean, God forbid if something like this was COVID related in terms of Keontae Johnson, what does that mean going forward? How do we know which player is going to react how? A player who tested positive, did Keontae do everything possible in terms of when he was tested positive for uh, COVID to go ahead and do everything to make him able, make him eligible, make it safe enough for him to return to the court? If he did, and I contracted the virus, then I don't know. I'm a little bit weary. If, if it can happen to Keontae, I got tested positive for uh, COVID this summer. How do I know that's not going to happen to me? There just needs to be a little cooling off period. I, I agree with Coach K on this one. And it had nothing to do with the fact that he was, at the time, 2-2. Two and two. I mean, none of that nonsense. Uh, but I, I agree that they should take a sincere look and determine exactly how are we going to go forward with this. But here is where my critique and my criticism of the NCAA does come into play. Because of the money situation, because of the fact that those guys are just trying to get the March Madness and have this tournament, it doesn't matter. The the tournament or the, the, the NCAA, the conferences, they're all determined to get a season in. So even if you delay and have thoughts and discussions and all this stuff about what's going on, the bottom line is going to be, well, we're still going to go ahead and play. Now, Rick Bettino gave a pretty good a uh, situation to where because when they're playing at the time right now the pandemic is at its worst why don't we delay the season until the spring or sometime down the road when the worst is beyond us in terms of the opportunity for people to get the corona we don't know what's going to be happening with the vaccines in terms of when they're going to be coming out who's going to be eligible and what but let's just wait a little bit longer to where you know it's more conducive to play the college basketball season minimize the risk of an outbreak or minimize the risk of multitude of players coming down with the uh, with uh, with COVID nineteen, and then we can move on from there. But I just think that these presidents and these conference uh, commissioners and everybody involved with the NCAA and college basketball, for the most part, the higher ups, I just think that they're just determined to go ahead and uh, finish the season. So. 
so be it. That's the way it is. The perfect example is a football. Football is going to be considered a success if they crown a champion uh, at the end of the college football season. And if Notre Dame, Clemson, Ohio State, and Alabama get there. Whatever happened before all that is meaningless as long as we can get those four football teams in. We have ourselves a college football playoff. We crown the champion. Those conferences get their checks, and everybody is happy and say, hip, hip, hooray, this was a success. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us quickly. Georgetown basketball got their first Big East win, conference win. Sunday night against St. John's in overtime, 97-94. Glass has half-empty approach. Defense is still a major problem. I almost flipped my lid. I almost jumped off my balcony when St. John's scored on that layup over Javon Blair on the out-of-bounds play underneath the basket left side with .9 seconds left to go. If I had a gun, well, I'm not going to say that, but it was just like, are you fucking serious? And the worst part is, what I was really mad about was the fact that I bet that these guys are going to score. When when the Georgetown, was, I think, was up 85, 83, or 87, 85, whatever, and they got the ball at .9 seconds, I said to myself, watch these motherfuckers score. Now, I thought that they were going to shoot a three-pointer. I thought they were going to run a play. A guy was going to get a wide-open three-pointer from one of the corners, hit it, hit it, and win the game. But it was a layup. It was just like, so that's what I was mad about. The fact that I knew that these guys on defense were so inept and so incompetent that something like this was not only possible in terms of scoring with under one second left, that it was probable. That's what just made me want to just smash my head through a plate glass window. But uh, they showed some resiliency. They came back, won the basketball game, whether they won it or St. John's lost it, not once but twice because they were up seven. I believe for three minutes or under three minutes left to go in regulation. Georgetown scored seven points in three minutes. <laughs> wow, that was surprising. But uh, overall, it was a it was a good win. But as I mentioned before, defense is still a major problem. Chudie Bile should not be playing. He played 21 minutes. That's more minutes than uh, Jabari Sibley, TJ Berger, Timothy Ego Hefe played combined against St. John's. I don't know how bad now Kobe Clark is out with an ankle injury. I don't know how bad Jabari Sibley is. I don't know in terms of what he's doing in practice or whatever, but for the fact that you have to play Chudier Bile 21 minutes, Jabari Sibley cannot be that bad. As bad as you might think the most pessimistic person as far as Georgetown basketball is concerned concerning Jabari Sibley, Jabari Sibley cannot be that bad in the eyes of that guy to be having Chudier Bile play 21 minutes. Chudier Bile should not be playing 21 minutes. The guy, good Lord have mercy. No, no. Again, I'm all thinking about down the road. I'm not thinking about right now. Play the young guys. I was dancing in the streets, man. I was doing the boogaloo. I was, I was boogalooing for Jesus when I saw TJ Berger coming to the game. And not only did he come into the game, he looked confident. He looked ready. He didn't look like the moment was too big for him. Now, yes, he's playing St. John's. Okay. So, so but, but yet and still, when in crunch time, he hit that three-pointer left side right in front of Coach Ewing, went in. That was, that was uh, a situation where eight minutes, he needed to play a little bit more. Now, throughout the season, is he going to be that efficient on an everyday basis? Probably not, but that's okay. This season, again, is not about wins and losses more than it is about building, learning, growing. That's what the Georgetown basketball season is all about. 
Dante Harris, two foundation pieces, Dante Harris and Kulis Wahab. Look, Harris scored 22 points on six for 14 shooting in 43 minutes, three rebounds, two assists. Is he going to be doing that every single game? No. He's going to have some games where he's going to be shooting five for 18. He's going to have some games where he's going to be shooting like Javon Blair in terms of his percentage is concerned. But that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. He's going to have games where he's going to have three assists and six turnovers. That's fine. Look, Jalen Harris is playing over 30 minutes a game, and that, that's what his ratio is. Now, he missed the game because of back spas, uh, spasms, but it's all about learning. Let Dante make his mistakes. Let him learn. My fear with all of these young guys is that because Coach Ewing wants to win so badly that he's going to put his trust in his veterans, which means that the opportunities for Harris and Sibley and Berger and Kobe Clark to make a mistake the chances of them coming out of the game because of that is going to be much greater than if, again, Javon Blair falls asleep on the inbounds pass and lets the guy score. If Jalen Harris goes full bore out of control and throws away a bad pass. If um, if uh, Jamarco Pickett tries to take his man off the dribble and throws it away or makes it a turnover or something like that. the The leash that the younger guys have in terms of the guys who I want to see, it's a lot shorter than the guys who are not going to be playing next year. I would like to see a little bit longer leash for those guys if it means losing the game. We ain't going to the tournament, Coach. I know that you're speaking about we need to play a certain amount of games to get into the tournament. Don't worry about that. We're not making the tournament. We're not good enough to go to the NCAA. We're not good enough to go to the NIT. I know that you're a competitor. I know that you're a fierce competitor. I know you have the ultimate confidence in yourself. I know that you said that you've liked your team and all of those type of things. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's fantastic. Face reality. This team is not good enough to make the NCAA tournament. I don't care if the tournament expanded to 150 teams. I'm glad that you played well and hung in there against West Virginia and Villanova. You're nowhere near. You're eons. You're a long ways away from being on those on, on a tier with those guys to honestly compete this season. Let the kids play, coach. Please, let the kids play. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us on the final countdown here, last segment of the program. I want to thank you very much for everybody who has been able to listen to my podcast. Very much appreciated. Um, I wanted to end with a little sports media news. And as I mentioned before in the opening segment of my podcast, man, karma is a bitch and sometimes just downright justified. ESPN's house Negro, Sage Steele, ah, she's being replaced for the 6 p.m. Sports Center anchor position and will move to the noon Eastern edition 
a sports center as co-anchor after the college football playoffs and will add a new periodic ESPN Plus interview program to her slate, which means that her workload is going down. They're more, I guess you could say, phasing her out. Steele is being replaced by none other than L. Duncan. Now, L. Duncan, for those who might not know, let me educate. She's the uh, black woman who recently, according to Sage Steele, uh, said that, uh, you know, she was trying to squeeze her out of a situation to where they're going to be speaking about race in America and Sage Steele and Michael Ease and some other folks were speaking about, you know what, um, I don't think Sage Steele would be good for this position because she's not black enough or she doesn't understand the black community enough or she ain't down enough. All of the things are being true. But basically, uh, Sage was speaking about, yeah, that's basically, uh, you know, she went to ESP and Brass and made that ac- accusation. So you could basically say that C- uh, Steele was trying to get Duncan fired or at least demoted. <laughs> Duncan's going to take over in February and co-host the show with Kevin Agande Monday through Friday. If Agande could stop smiling every other 15 seconds, it would be nice. But as I mentioned before, Sage and her house Negroism is, is well known. Um, don't like her. Never liked her. I don't know her. I've never met her from... But from what I see of her, this is what I'm basing it on. I, I just don't like her. In, the, in July of this year, 2020, as I mentioned before, talking about that one issue about, you know, Michael Eves and L. Duncan are talking about, I'm not black enough to be on this pot, on this uh, program and they're, they're boxing me out or whatever. Uh, Steele told the Wall Street Journal, that two of her fellow black colleagues, Duncan and Michael Eves, allegedly worked to keep her from taking part in a special that took place in June called Time for Change, We Won't Be Defeated. Now, the show was hosted by Sports Center anchors Duncan Eves and Jay Wright, along with Maria Taylor, as they led a conversation that explored black athletes' experiences with injustice. Now, according to the report, Steele believed that Duncan and Eves told management that she wouldn't be accepted by what they considered the black community. And here's what she failed to realize. This is the biggest joke of them all. So she believed that L. Duncan and Michael Eve did a James Harden, basically told management, this is who we want, this is what we're going to be dealing with, and this is who we don't want. Really? L. Duncan and Michael Eves has that type of power? They have that type of stroke where they can go to the management and talk about, we don't want stage steel. Like the management would, was sitting there talking about, you know, this would be a great situation as far as hosting this uh, special that we're having, talking about the black athletes' experiences with injustice, police brutality, what we need to do. The George Floyd situation was still red hot. So the ESPN brass was up there talking about, you know what? Sage Steele would be great for something like this. Oh, no, but here comes L. Duncan, and here comes Michael Eve saying, no, 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 mm no way. They're, she's not down with the black community. She doesn't understand the black community. She ain't black enough. She ain't invited to the barbecue. Y'all need not to have that situation go down with Sage Steele hosting this program. And the ESPN brass looked at each other and said, all right, well, if L. Duncan and Michael Eve says that, well, then obviously... We have to go ahead and uh, acquiesce and bow down to their wishes. L, Michael, who would you like to have on the program instead of uh, instead of Miss Steele? 
Oh, you would like Maria Taylor? You would like Jay Harris? Okay, no problem. Here's a look. Here's my card. Here's my number. Here's my cell phone number. Just text me the rest of the folks that you want to go ahead and have on this panel and have in this discussion and have on this special. And we'll be more than happy to go ahead and bow down to your every needs. Bow down to your every wishes. Complete and utter bullshit. And for Sage Steele, which I'm going to take a wild guess and say she had no clue. She had no concrete evidence. Just the feeling that she had that possibly, probably, those two were the culprits and the reason why she wasn't on or she wasn't invited to be a panelist on this discussion, that she then went to management and said that? Really? That's some bullshit. That's some nonsense. That's some coonerism. That's some, that's some house negroism right there. And it's so becoming of Sage Steele. And again, what she failed to realize, really, it's interesting that they were going to be having this panel or this discussion talking about black athletes experiences with injustice and guess who wasn't on the panel guess who wasn't invited Bomani Jones and Stephen A. Smith I mean Stephen A. Smith every time there's something going down considering anything at ESPN they gotta throw that motherfucker in there so you're gonna try to tell me that in a situation like this that they didn't invite Stephen A., they didn't invite Bomani Jones. What, did L. Duncan and Michael Eves go to the management and tell them not to put those two on either? Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. But just to show you the type of coon that Sage Steele is, there are other instances of coonerism actions. Let's take a look at 2016 when she went on Twitter to criticize Tampa Bay Buccaneers wide receiver Michael Evans or Mike Evans for sitting during the national anthem. In fact, she tweeted, she tweeted, hey, Mike Evans, Look up the definition of the word democracy and remember this pic while kneeling, exercising your right to protest. Hashtag perspectives. They were showing she was she had a picture on her Twitter account of a soldier kneeling, I guess, at Arlington Cemetery. Her father, I believe, was uh, served served this country, so she feels that uh, she is of the uh, experience, that she is of the intelligence level, that she can go ahead and educate. Someone who had the nerve to kneel, even though time and time and time and time and time again to you fucking ignorant fools that why Colin Kaepernick and why everybody else was kneeling had nothing to fucking do with the armed forces. I don't know how many fucking times we have to tell you idiots that, but no, it had nothing to do with that. But good old Sage Steele don't want to disappoint Master and the white folks had to go on there and, and, and tweet that bullshit. So that was back in 2016. In 2017, she complained about her flight being delayed due to people protesting Trump's immigration ban at uh, LAX, at Los, A uh, Los Angeles International. And this is what she wrote on Instagram. This is one woman. They're talking about people need to, celebrities or public figures or employees at ESPN need to go ahead and delete their uh, social media accounts so they won't get in trouble. Yeah, Say Steele needs to go ahead and do that because she made herself look like an absolute fool which she tweeted on Twitter about Mike Evans back in 2016, something I don't think she's ever really addressed and said I was wrong. And then on 2017, on her Instagram account, her complaining about her flight being delayed due to people protesting um, that piece of shit's uh, immigration ban at the Los Angeles International, she said, So, this is why thousands of us drag luggage nearly two miles to get to LAX, but still miss our flights. Fortunately, a seven-hour wait for the next flight to Houston won't affect me that much, but my heart sank for the elderly and parents with small children 
who did their best to walk all that way but had no chance of making their flights. I love witnessing people exercise their right to protest, but it saddens me to see the joy on their faces knowing that they were successful in disrupting so many people's travel plans. Yes, immigrants were affected by this as well. Brilliant. Us. F-U-C-K-Y-O-U. Oh, yes, Steele. Oh, my goodness. We have an immigration policy which has families being torn apart and children being, and children being put in cages. But God forbid if you have to wait seven hours for your next flight because people are protesting that. Don't think people realize how important it is that you go ahead and make your flight? Don't give me some bullshit about, oh yeah, I was thinking about the elderly. I was thinking about the others. No, bullshit. You were thinking about your own goddamn self. Get the fuck out of here. Yes, protesting can be difficult. Yes, protesting has to be uncomfortable. Yes, protesting has to have some sacrifice. And the protesters, really, like they were sitting up there t cheering, applauding, in jubilation because... Uh, folks who might have some disabilities in terms of physical disabilities or the, or the elderly, you really think that those people were cheering. You really think those people were happy. You really think that those people were content to be like, yeah, I'm in a good mood because now what we're doing is going to be causing those people to miss their flights. Sucks. Quite sure it sucks. I'm quite sure they felt bad for it. But guess what? If you ain't going to protest when times are, you don't protest when when times are convenient. That's not going to make a mark. That's not going to get anybody's attention. You do what you got to do. And you sacrifice. And unfortunately, those are some of the, that's some of the collateral damage that happens when those things, uh, when, when, when protesting like that occurs sometimes. Unfortunately. But guess what? They were protesting a, a policy where families were being ripped apart, which was racist, discriminatory, and you had families, children, being put in fucking cages, you stupid fucking bitch. So yeah, in a situation like that, unfortunately, something like that had to be done. Maybe if your motherfucker that you voted for had a little bit of common sense, had a little bit of decency, had a little bit of morals, maybe a situation like that wouldn't have occurred. And oh, for heaven's sakes, you would have to not, you wouldn't be able to make your flight. Poor Sage. Wendell's World of Sports on the podcast. I'm, uh, this is, <laughs> this is Wendell's World of Sports. This is the podcast. Wendell Wallace speaking to you. So, also, she told a crowd in Florida, she was on some panel speaking about the coon name Stay Steel. She told a crowd in Florida that the worst racism I see comes from black people. And she made that comment while moderating the Under Our Skin Forum at the Crossing Church in Tampa. She said, there are times that I believe that we as African-Americans okay, can be hypocritical and that it is, and that it, and that is to not look ourselves in the mirror when we are saying certain things and blaming other groups for one thing when we are doing the exact same thing. Now, this panel included Tony Dungy, former wide, uh, former running back for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Warwick Dunn, CBS sportscaster James Brown, and former... University of South Carolina, uh, uh, South Florida head coach, Charlie Strong. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, so you, you're just going to be throwing black, you're going to be throwing black folks under the bus. You know, you're, you know, you're right. Sometimes black folks are hypocritical. You're right. Absolutely right, Sage. You're right. Sometimes black folks can criticize other black folks the same way white folks criticize black folks. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. 
But you know who else does that? White folks. You know who else has that problem? Hispanic folks. You know who else? You know who else turns on their own kind sometimes? Every fucking race on this planet. Now I don't know exactly the context of the discussion which made her say that, but I think this was a discussion to where we're not here to uh, blast our own, Sage. We're not here to blast our home. It's the same deal as, yeah, you know, uh, black people killing each other in Chicago and it's horrible and it's terrible. So, you know, let's get white folks to pass on their racism and on their ignorance and on their stereotypes and on their discrimination because, you know, we've got black fathers who aren't taking care of their uh, responsibilities with their children and we got people in Chicago who are black shooting each other up. Yeah, we, we, we know that, Sage. We know that, Sage. We know that, Sage. We know that, Sage. But now for that discussion is not the time. We are not here to discuss that. We are well aware of those problems. We are not turning a blind eye. And even though those things are going on in our communities, that does not excuse white people who are racist and are discriminatory against us. That doesn't get white folks who are discriminatory and ignorant and racist and bigoted toward us a pass. There's no yeah buts in this one. And what I was thinking, and I wasn't there, and I wasn't privy to the conversation or the discussion, so I could be wrong here, but in this instance, for her to go ahead and say that bullshit, I think under the same context of, you know, my father was black and my mother was white, so, you know, I saw from both sides. I saw that the white folks were giving it bad to the black folks, and I saw that the black folks were giving it bad to the white folks, because my mom... Because she married a black guy, faced the same discrimination as my black father who married this white woman. And the discrimination and the hurtful words and the all of those things also came from the black community. So blah, blah, blah. We got the stage. We got it. Again, doesn't give white folks a pass, especially when they've had such a head start in terms of discriminating, in terms of segregation, in terms of discrimination. Doesn't give white folks a pass. Doesn't give white folks the pass. And guess what? With them being the majority, also gives them the power to make some, make some real impact in a negative way with their bigotry, with their racism, with their discriminatory actions. Much more than black folks who criticize other black folks. So Sage, shut the fuck up with your nonsense. Okay, so later that year, she was a guest on the Dan Patrick Show, and she expressed how she didn't want to hear about Charlottesville on Sports Center. She said, "I always go back to why people did not turn on us when Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann were hosting, and why they are turning on us now." In my opinion, is not. In my opinion, is not to hear about Charlottesville. It's not okay. Sage, first of all, um, and of course, she was directing this uh, to certain black folks who came on and. I don't know if they were sitting there talking about a discussion about Charlottesville. Now, one thing Sage has to realize is that the sporting world during that time, athletes from the sports also made news and headlines in terms of what they were doing in terms of discussing Charlottesville. Uh, Chris Long, I think at the time that was playing for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, you know, he came out and made some comments about what went down in Charlottesville and the and uh, Trump's um, uh, comments about there were good people on both sides. So there were people from the sporting world who injected themselves into what was going down in Charlottesville. Sports, 
was intersecting with what was happening down in Charlottesville. Now, did any of those folks get on there and give commentary about what that fucking asshole in the White House said? No. Was there any type of political discussion about Charlottesville on Sports Center? No. It came on the premise, it came with the lens, it came down the avenue of discussing what was happening in Charlottesville from the sports perspective in terms of the players, in terms of the professional athletes and what they were doing. Now, if you want to go ahead, Sage, and ignore that, if you want to go ahead and ignore what Chris Long and others were saying and doing and contributing and some of the college players at the University of Virginia, if you want to ignore that because you can't be too bothered with that, then any of these good stories about what's happening in college sports, in professional sports, we need to ignore that also. Because if we're going to be doing the good, then I also want to hear the fucking bad. If we're going to be talking about some kids over in Iowa with the cancer center, and every time we see an Iowa game, we have to talk about that for 15 minutes while the game is going on. If that's acceptable, which is fine, but if we're going to do that, then in the situation where Charlottesville were players and athletes participating in the games that ESPN cover... If they're going to go ahead and do some things noteworthy concerning that matter, guess what, Sage? ESPN needs to talk about that also. So, again, speaking about Jamel Hill, I don't think Jamel Hill came around and was giving the political point of view of what happened in Charlottesville on SportsCenter, nor Michael Smith, nor anybody else of color. It's just Sage's way of showing her tunerism, of showing her house negroism, of showing her step infection, and showing, showing her what she's really all about. Unbelievable. And then, of course, then again, the worst thing is when she went against Black America's little sis, Jamel Hill, or Big Sis, whatever age group that you're in. Don't, don't, don't mess with Jamel Hill. If you're black, don't, no, don't, don't, don't do that. That's the equivalent of Chris Darden going up against Johnny Cochran during the old J trial. His black colleagues told Chris Darden, don't do it. Johnny's on this case, Chris, don't do it. Not only will you lose, you'll be made a fool of. Don't do it. Chris Darden was like, fuck it, I'm going to do it. Has anybody seen Chris Darden? Anybody know what happened to Chris Darden? Whatever what what was whatever happened to the career of Chris Darden? Exactly. Don't if, if especially if you're a coon like Sage Steele, don't do it. Don't go up against Jamel Hill, but she couldn't resist. So the whole situation with that was Sage defended Sam Ponder when she questioned ESPN for being in partnership with Barstool Sports. I think that lasted for about, I don't know, fifteen seconds. When Barstool tweeted some pretty disgusting, personal, abhorrent remarks about her on Twitter. I mean, really went below the belt. Look, I'm not a big Sam Ponder fan, but God those sakes of my... I'm not going to go ahead and make misogynistic, ignorant, personal attacks on her just because I don't think that she's very good of being uh, in the position that she's in right now. Just because I don't like what she does on the um, Sunday morning show, I'm not going to go ahead and start blasting her personally or, you know, doing anything like that. But Barstool went ahead and did that. So ESP was like, thanks, but no thanks. Being a woman in uh, sports, quite sure, being, you know, the, the society that we live in, being as misogynistic as it is, I'm quite sure that she's got, you know, bitch needs to, you know, bitch go into the kitchen and do this, that, and the other. I mean, you get the pretty ignorant, uh, stupid things uh, being tossed your way and, you know, social media and other things. So look, 
you know, that was the latest salvo in terms of uh, the ignorance that might come from people regarding, look, you want to say Sam Ponder is not good at ESPN doing um, sports? Fine. But to go ahead and do the personal attack based on her gender and something like that is fucking ridiculous. So Sage came out and she tweeted her support for Sam Ponder because, you know, Sam was kind of taking this, you know, she was the leader on this. And what she did was right and it showed some strength and it showed some courage and it showed some fortitude and gained a whole lot of respect for Sage in that way in terms of, you know, I'm not backing down. I'm going to uh, do what's right. And uh, I'm not going to be scared. I'm not going to be intimidated. It's a new day. Women are now at the forefront. Women can do this job just as well as men. And uh, I'm not going to take any ignorant, misogynistic uh, 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 shots thrown my way and sit there and take it. I'm not going to do that. So she fired back and she did great. She did it in a respectful, intelligent way. So, you know, mad props and respect for Sam Ponder in that situation. I still don't think that she's good on Sunday morning football, but you know what? As far as a human being is concerned, from what she showed me, not like she really gives a fuck, but I just like, you know, I got a whole new respect in that regard for Sam Ponder. Well, again, Sage Steele, you know, tweeted, telling her to stay strong. She said, when I was going through my social media attacks, of course, got to be about her, I felt really, really, really alone in every single way. Well, your husband and your kids couldn't help you out. It's hard when you're being attacked and no one publicly will support you. We'll say that because you're a coon. And now I know, having experienced it, how important it is to have it like that. The second I saw what was going on with Sam, I was like, Sam, I got your back. So when Jamel Hill was facing her stuff with uh, the jackasses at the White House because she correctly called the motherfucker that's in the White House now for a couple of more weeks a white supremacist, which he is, and they were talking about her getting fired and she went all through that stuff with um, ESPN suspending her and everything. Well, I mean, Sage Steele, who replaced Jamel Hill at the anchor on Sports Center, she said that I think Jamel is a completely different story in regards to if you're, if you're going to go ahead and defend Sam Ponder, why didn't you do the same thing for, say, uh, for um, Jamel Hill? She said, I think Jamel is a completely different story in that she put... She put that on herself of her own volition. Sam was attacked. I think it's an important distinction. <laughs> Look, Sage Steele is one of them black folks to where um she won't listen she won't listen to black folks in terms of saying, you know, this is wrong, you need to change, you need to do some other things. Sage Steele is not gonna listen. Sage Steele isn't gonna listen to our community concerning that. You see, what Sage is going to do, she's going to run over the white folks who's going to tell her, oh, you know, Sage, don't worry about them. We get you. We understand you. We know that you're right and they're wrong. We understand that. See, we know. We know, Sage. So, you know, come to our bosom. Come to our, you know, come to our side of the tracks. Don't worry about them. They don't get it. They're too busy whining and complaining and playing race cards and being the victim. You know, you're absolutely right there, Sage. You know, we'll we'll take care of you. We get you. 
we understand you. So that's the reason why she can go on the Dan Patrick show and talk so freely and be so flowingly talking about, uh, you know, Charlottesville. We don't want to hear about Charlottesville and Colin Kaepernick. I understand why he doesn't have a job and it has nothing to do with race. I mean, she can go ahead with Dan Patrick and say all that stuff because Dan Patrick is not going to call her out on her bullshit. She ain't going to go to Roland Martin. She ain't going to go to Michael Eve. She ain't going to go to Bamani Jones. She ain't going to go to Max Kellerman. She ain't going to go to me. And uh, try to uh, pass that bullshit. Because she's going to get called out on it. She ain't going to be doing any of that. She ain't going on Joy Reid. She ain't going to be uh, on the show with the Black Eagle, uh, Joe Madison. She ain't going to go on Urban uh, XM uh, Radio and, and try that bullshit. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Karen Hunter. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Jamel Hill. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Kerry Champion. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Michael Steele. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Torre. She ain't going to try that nonsense with Jonathan Capehart. She ain't going to try that nonsense with any of that. With any of us. With any of us, uh, folks. Because we are going to call her out on her bullshit. She ain't going to say that shit with Jay Harris. She ain't going to say that shit with Maria Taylor. We, we're not going to allow that coonerism. We ain't going to allow that House Negro is in the past to uh, pass us without without calling her out on it. So she's got to run over to the white folks who get it, who understand it, who will let her be the coon that she is. And everything will be zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. So, you know, bye-bye, Sage. Bye-bye. You know, Go ahead and play with your kids and go ahead and hang out with your husband and, and have a ball, have a blast. But it's good to see L. Duncan, who is not ashamed of her blackness to go ahead and um, take the position. And, and, and guess what? She's going to do a, a fabulous job. I don't watch the 6 o'clock Sports Center, 3 o'clock out here. I'm either watching the Food Network channel or I'm doing something else. But uh, unless there's something that I need to watch to educate me on, then I'll go ahead and um, watch the uh, Sports Center. But I'm not an everyday for a total hour of watching Sports Center. Now I'll watch something on CNN or MSNBC or listen to a podcast or I'll do something else. But I'm just glad that um, karma took care of some things. <laughs> All right. I am out of here, man. I'm good to go. Time for me to continue watching my man Bobby Flay annihilate another jackass who wants to sit there and try their signature dish. I need to be on that show. All right, Wendell, good job. Uh, way to go. So tell me, what's your signature di- signature dish? All right, Bobby. My signature dish is scrambled eggs. Yeah! Oh, by the way, let's, let's take it up a level. Let's make it an omelet. <laughs> yeah! You're going down, Flay! You're going down. <laughs> my man Bobby Flay don't mess with my man Bobby Flay no one can be Bobby Flay well they do but still alright so I want to thank everybody for listening to the program I'm going to try to come out with another podcast in a couple of days I'm going to talk about Anthony Joshua his knockout the victory what it means for the heavyweight division moving forward Canelo is going to fight this weekend along with um, Triple G on the zone, which I'm going to watch, you've got the uh, conference championships, the ACC, the SEC. So by Monday, we should have a much better understanding of who the four playoff contenders are going to be in college football and some pretty good games in the NFL. And we also got the NBA starting 
less than a week, Tuesday, I believe that's going to be the first game. So a lot of things you want to know why my podcasts are so long, but look at all that shit I got to talk about. I'm going to do it in a passionate, energetic, entertaining, thought-provoking way. So I want to thank you very much for listening to the program. Be safe. God bless. Be safe. Wear a mask. Six feet. Do the right thing. I'm out. Music. Dark of the bay, I'm wasting time.